Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast and a happy new year to you. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Andy Pancholi. Andy Pancholi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Well, I think this is going to be a really exciting one. There's so much to cover, um, not least because of your interest outside the markets being a airline pilot, which I think we're going to come on to a bit later for some from, for some other questions. But before we get into the financial stuff, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into the markets in the first place? Sure. Um, absolutely, Paul. So, uh, Really, the interest stems all the way back to when I was a teenager and uh, really got a big fascination for economics. And then I went and studied economics uh, university. But um, as you go through a, a first degree, you realize that the economics professors really want to convince you that everything is a, a function of a mathematical formula. So econometrics being something along these lines. And you go heavily into calculus. And that suddenly for me, sort of spoilt this notion of, you know, demand and supply and all these other things that we'd learnt during uh, O-levels and A-levels as they were in those days. And so from that point onwards, I switched some of my modules at uh, uni to um, looking at more of the economic and social history modules. And of course, one of the things we studied was this Kondratiev wave, which is a 60-year pattern. So this really sort of uh, got me interested in cycles and, and um um, in parallel with a career in aviation. And, uh, you know, I've just been studying cycles ever since, really, for, uh, well, I guess it's 40 years now. And uh, the idea being to see that, well, the more we look into this, the, we see that uh, human behavior moves in mathematical patterns and events repeat to some degree. I know they say history sometimes repeats, but it often rhymes. And so this was the whole thing that the more we look into this, the, the, the greater the fascination came in. And of course, Markets have always been a key fascination. So the, my initial focus was very much on markets and could they, uh, you know, could you um, get an advantage by knowing what could possibly lie ahead? I mean, there's no holy grail, obviously. So that's how it really started, uh, Paul. Right. And so bring us up to date. How did you develop the market timing report, which is what you produce now? And what were you doing in between? What I, I believe you were involved with a hedge fund yes yes so uh um yeah so uh, the hedge fund really was the proof of the uh, of eating your own home cooking but you know if we if we head back to the 90s i studied a lot of the work of uh, wd gan and other cycles people and um uh worked with various people was very close to the uh, still am close to the family that owned the gan material and having researched everything which was cryptically written um, around about 2000, 2001, developed um, some software uh, just for myself. And basically, uh, that really highlighted some very good uh, um, turning points. You know, we were able to identify potential turning points coming up. And with that, traded very successfully for several years. Um, and uh, basically, what happened from there was we also had a, a handful of uh, significant city clients who'd pay us revenues uh, which you know helped for the uh, you know fund the research. You know, actually, most of the research and development was funded by success in trading. Uh, and and to some extent, we have to you know if we look at that time period, that there were not 24-hour commodity markets. The commodity markets were an absolute dream because some of them were only open two, three hours a day, three, four hours a day. 
So with that, we developed this. Then people heard that we'd got some sort of system and um, we did run up quite large debts within the development, uh, the research and development side of the business. And the accountant kept saying, you've got to create some sort of product. And obviously, we're getting some consultancy revenues. And I said, OK, we'll do anything but write a newsletter. But then um, people wanted the information at an affordable price. So we created a newsletter called the Market Timing Report. And the whole point of this really is that um, a lot of people say markets cannot be timed. Now, let's be honest about this. There is no holy grail in trading and investing. It's all about incremental gains. And anything that gives you a slight advantage or edge, you know, if you harness that accordingly, uh, then you, you, you're into an area where you can improve risk reward ratios. So if we know, for example, just say we're in a campaign or a, a trading position or series of positions in a particular instrument and it's been trending nicely. So we're doing quite well with it. Now, most people don't know when to get out of that position. In fact, most swing traders and trend followers will just wait for the previous two swings to be taken out. Whereas if we know there's a potential time cycle coming in, that's the point that we look to take that position off and basically or, or hedge it or, you know, whatever it is we, you know, we're looking at, if it's a small pullback or whatever. So the idea is that we can foresee uh, an area, a time period in which to manage risk. Now, if, for example, uh, you know, uh, I think pretty much everybody listening to this has got a good deal of experience in trading and investment. You know, if we're approaching a technical price target, then we know that's the target that's going to work. So that's how the system works with this information. And then, you know, fast forwarding, I did um, work, uh, consult uh, to um, a very well-known uh, billionaire in America uh, and his team. Uh, they have a non-disclosure, so I, I, I can't tell you who it is, but they were very much into timing. And that was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was on that, you know, it was during that time period there that uh, we were looking at uh, some super macro cycles, which we can talk about later, like the 72-year cycle. There's, you know, markets repeat at 72-year intervals, amongst others. So they were preparing for the dot-com boom to basically go to bust. And they absolutely nailed it. And, you know, I was on the team working there. So that uh, then fast forward several years, in fact, fast forward probably another probably 15 to 18 years. And um, one of those uh, gentlemen from the team got hold of me saying, hey, what are you doing? Are you still doing this cycle stuff? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, they wrapped up and uh, returned all the money at that point. So we did go into uh, uh, we um, in fact, I joined him and a couple of other people in a, in a hedge fund uh, over in, um, on the east coast of America. And we were using these techniques, these timing techniques, together with um, some uh, geometry techniques, which enable you to manage the risk very well. And the bottom line was that uh, um, we, we stopped running this uh, fund uh, and returned money uh, a, few, a few months ago. But uh, last year, we closed up um, 34%, beating the S&P by 48%. So it's this whole idea of eating your own home cooking, as it were. So I think that probably answers your question of how we ended up with a hedge fund. Just a quick question about geometry. You said geometry, and I was just thinking, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Maybe our listeners might not understand what you mean by that term. Yes, of course. So uh, the simple sort of geometry is really, you know, putting a trend line out there and uh, lining up at least three points and then creating a channel uh, and then trading that channel uh, from high to low and the midpoint of that channel. So it's something as straightforward as that. And one of our favorite tools really is the Andrews Pitchfork. So, uh, uh, again, uh, it, that that's another piece of uh, geometry as we use it. Yes, sorry, I, 
sorry paul you know we, we just talk about this all day every day when we're working with the team here so um, we we don't think twice about it but you're you're very right it's not very clear so yes andrew's pitchforks uh price projections and uh the idea is that you know you can double a range or half a range and uh get a, a significant price target or objective um and we would call that two-dimensional and then you can put it into three dimensions by creating channels or or pitchforks uh, does that make sense we yes absolutely i mean what what you're saying is um technicals using basically using technicals as a broad term i mean w when yeah. i first started out in the markets people wouldn't even look at technicals because they thought it was voodoo and many people still do and the, the interesting thing about the uh, area of technical analysis is that it has uh, become more widespread more accepted you don't have to sort of explain to people that you're you're not actually looking at voodoo and chicken entrails and all that in order to predict the markets you're actually using you know proper kind of um, actually even better thought out than a lot of economics um, you know strategies that that make logical sense you know when when markets for example you talked about the dot-com boom i mean many people who were just watching that could recognize that we were in a, a completely different new kind of paradigm but actually that had happened many times before if you'd studied your market history you'd know about tulip bulbs you know about 1929 and what happened there and and that everything repeats and the market's highly psych psychological and tim's actually said um, many times on the show that if um if you'd gone back to to study again um you, you would have looked at psychology is that is that right tim yeah the two the two in the somewhat artificial environment of going back and and knowing then what i what i know now and going for a career in investment markets then the, the two degrees what one or the, one or two of the degrees i would have elected to use in preference to the ones i one i did which was english which i thoroughly enjoyed would have been one would have been history and the other one would have been psychology oh i i think uh, do you know tim you're absolutely right I, and that's where the majority of my research focus goes now is um is looking at history so what what i've done here over the last 25 years is i've created a huge series of timelines and we've got some that we print out that literally are seven eight feet sort of square and so on and you can just see how these patterns recur and they recur with incredible, absolute sort of precision. So one has to conclude that um, uh, that that psychology can be, you know, or mass mass psychology is measurable and that there is no new thing under the sun, as one particular good book says, uh, and that, you know, human behavior just repeats because we don't learn from it. And I think, you know, this becomes evident when, um, you know, if I can give you an example, one of the things back in 2006, I was out in Cincinnati, uh, Ohio, talking to uh, a group of 15 high net worth people who were interested in this work. And I was saying, you know, uh, we're coming up to the point where we can expect a big financial crash and runs on banks, because if we go back 100 years to 1907, we had the rich man's panic. And if we go back another 100 years, we had the 1807 Embargo Act, when, which during the Napoleonic Wars, the Americans decided they were going to remain neutral and stop trading and thereby bring Europe to its knees. But in fact, it backfired completely. And then we take the midpoints of this 100-year cycle, 1857, saw the biggest financial collapse uh, in the modern world, really, you know, both Britain 
uh, Europe, well, Britain, Europe and America suffered huge collapses due to overexpansion in the railroad booms. And then 1957, we saw something similar. It was just a more of a secular bear market uh, where uh, at that point, everybody that, you know, wanted a fridge and could afford one had one. Everybody who wanted an automobile had one. So it was the end of it. It was a, a technical, you know, a technological peak. And when we see these 100 year cycles, just for one example, repeating, they're just so precise. And, and therefore, uh, <clears throat> we have to accept that human psychology does move in mathematical patterns. And then, you know, one of the things I do say when we discuss this is, well, you know, people say, how did you really get stuck into this? Well, and if I said to both of you, Paul and Tim, you know, how, how was the uh, 8th of February 2009 for you or something like that? Unless something absolutely exceptional happened, there was a, you know, you got married or met somebody or there was a, you know, family event or a death, you probably won't remember that day. You know, you, but the whole point is that if you look at a market chart, when we look at a market chart, we have an open high, low close. And what, ha uh, and I'm going to relate this back to you, to us personally in a minute. And we can see the feeling of that market, be it gold, the S&P, uh, soybeans, bonds. And, you know, if you equate that to human behavior, well, you know, t today's been an interesting day that, you know, for me, I got up, spoke to Paul earlier this morning, got very excited and uh, then sort of went sideways, just getting up on admin stuff and then, you know, more excited to be talking to you. So at this moment in time, it's been a pretty bullish day for myself in terms of measuring my sentiment. And this is exactly what a market does. So Every day, you know, people won't recall, you know, what happened on a particular day 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. You know, did they wake up feeling great and then sort of things went downhill and it was a down day? Or did they have a nice morning, a bad afternoon, but closed flat on the day? And that's what a market bar tells us. So price charts and the behavior of those bars is a measure of sentiment. So that's the first thing. We've got the individual daily sentiment. And then we can see within this the patterns of extended psychology, which is the bull markets, the bear markets, capitulation, uh, or you know, ex, you know, extreme highs, and this is all a measure of psychology. And then, as we know, when we get to the extremes, we see the blow-off moves, you know, at the top, and say capitulation. So, I think when you say history and psychology being the key subjects, Tim, I think you're absolutely right. That that, that my focus now is I collect and read uh, a lot of old history books. And anything on on psychology as well, definitely. That I think these are the keys, and it's the ability to try and synthesise that information that really gives us an advantage. So, a couple of things there. When you're looking at history, because a lot of history is dominated by war, how do you get the best information that's not kind of? Well, I guess you can't work out whether it's skewed or not because. It's the only information available. Modern history is very well documented. The problem is there's too much of it and sifting through what is uh, you know, useful noise against the signal is much harder. Um, so I guess there's modern problems. But um, as far when you're going as far back as you are, uh, you're reliant on records that may or may not be correct. How, how, how do you deal with that? Well, th that's where the, the super macro cycles definitely get fuzzy because, you know, human civilization really has only been documented to two to you know, four thousand years. 
And um, markets, as far as we're concerned, really the best data we've you know, really only goes back <clears throat> just roughly 300 years, not even that. Um, but let's address this area of war cycles. So there is um, uh, 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 war cycles, revolutionary cycles, same concept. So the idea is people get to a tipping point and there is it's roughly an 82 to 84 year cycle. And what we see here is that if, if we go back, um, so I, I collaborated on a book back in 2017 in which um, uh, I, I put these cycles in. And uh, the, the idea was that 2017, uh, 2016, 2017, we were really at a modern day revolution. Uh, the idea being is that the world had gone from globalization towards polarization. And we were seeing things like Brexit. Uh, rearing its head, we're seeing and, a and Trump. <laughs> That's exactly it, Tim. Exactly, and and in America, the emergence of a different type of leader who would go on to be president, uh, Donald Trump. So why why did we see this? And it's because people got fed up with the status quo. Now, if we head back from there, eighty two to eighty four years, uh, um, <clears throat> we get to nineteen thirty three, nineteen thirty two, and we go to. Uh, Germany, and we see that the somewhat perceived as weak Chancellor Hindenburg uh, really uh, was was um, not, you know, cutting the mustard there. And uh, and basically, uh, this gentleman Adolf Hitler turns up and uh, becomes Chancellor, albeit on on quite a you know a strong agenda, uh, which then varies into something that's quite poisonous. So, so again, what had happened there? The Germans were the German populace had lived through the Weimar Republic. They'd had great reparations forced on them from the Great War, from the First World War, and they'd had enough. So, just like 2016, 17, 1933, 32, and of course, we were in the depths of global recession and depression from the 29 crash. We can now take that cycle another repetition back, and it takes us to 1848. And in January 1848, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, in January 1848, uh, 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 a man called Karl Marx and his um, his buddy Friedrich Engels uh, create the Communist Manifesto. Workers rise up, break free of your chains. So what had happened then was basically Europe had been primarily an agrarian economy and the Industrial Revolution had been taking place. People were lured off the fields, but they were put in sweatshops and disgusting conditions in factories. So suddenly the, the Jeff Bezos's of the time, if you like, or whoever you want to call them, were deemed to be taking advantage of the populace. So it was time for the workers to rebel. And we take this one other revolution back. So you can see these curves. So you know, basically the workers rebelled because they'd had enough of the status quo. And then, then we take this back into history and we go back to 1765 and the Stamp Act, which really was the point that the American settlers had had enough of the British intervention and the need for taxation and so on. This led up to the American Revolution. So you can see how these cycles repeat. So there's sort of three repetitions. Now, those three repetitions together average 250 years. And what I've noticed is that there is like a 250-year cycle in empires and so on, and they tend to sort of change. And that's where we are with America. 1776 plus two, 250 takes us to 2026. So that's why we're seeing so much change. And of course, it's not an exact 250. It plays out a decade either side. But 
we can take that 250 and double it. So if you're staying with this from 2017, we can go back to 1517. And on 31st of October 2017, um, uh, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, starting the Protestant Reformation. So if we project everything forward 500 years back from there, you know, forward takes us to 2017, you know, uh, 250 takes us to 2017, this sort of decade. You can see we're seeing a cultural revolution, a monetary revolution. And the other thing that I was looking at was there's a 90 year pattern. And again, these are all you know, these are all functions of generation cycles. Uh, that being um, five, five, five patterns of 18 years being a generation, we were expecting some significant high from the, the, the 1929 uh, top. So that would come in in 2019. It actually came in February 2020, just six weeks out. But you could head back from 29, 90, 90 years to 1839, and we got the biggest collapse between 1837 to 42. So that is how these patterns repeat mathematically. And uh, how we see war cycles. So, you know, I'm talking about this 82 to 84 year cycle on by the same token where we are right now. And this is what we'd forewarned our followers about uh, two years ago, three years ago, was that uh, if we if we head back um, to 1939 and add 82 years to that, that took us to 2021 to 2023. So we were in a world war cycle, because if you take the previous repetition back, it takes us to the Crimean War. So the idea is that the major countries of the time are involved in conflict. And the repetition before that really was the American War of Independence. So you can see that we are in a world war right now. And I'm, I'm just preparing the geopolitical year ahead report, um, uh, market time report year ahead special. And basically, this is exactly the sort of stuff we're looking at. And it's by the same token. You know, if we take the American Civil War and add the appropriate cycles, we are heading into the U.S. Civil War or uh, type scenario, or at least a degeneration there in the uh, political, uh, the um, you know the the social socioeconomic structure of America, which now people are talking about openly. And we we forewarned people about this a couple of years ago. So, does that answer your question there, Paul, on wars? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, obviously, wars are the biggest events. Uh, the most upheaval so it would be well documented but i was just curious as to what you use for, obviously history is written by the victors as they say and um it, not only just looking at war you may be looking at other other sort of events that um it would as you go back as you were saying as you go back it must be harder and harder to get good good information or where you get it from the church for example from what i understand is a very good place to get um records because they go they tend to keep good records and they tend to go back a long way as well so um i was just fascinated as to how you how you actually sort of compile this information where you even start really <laughs> um i have to say uh, when I first started doing it, it, it was much harder. And uh, now we have the ability to search the Internet and uh, and so on. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that really did solidify uh, things was studying some of Gann's work, because Gann did document a lot of this stuff. And his um, for those of you who studied it, you know, it's pretty droll. It, you know, it really is like watching paint dry. But within that, he veils a lot of stuff. And uh, 
it was only by looking at this and spending hours and hours pouring over it, if not weeks and months, you suddenly get the occasional light bulb go on. And then, of course, then you understand how he writes and you're able to decipher more and more of it. And I don't think anybody knows what he was doing. But as you make this progress, you can see he's veiling these events in some of his books. He talks about um, wars and he talks. Of, and in fact, you know, the novel he wrote is all about war cycles. And it, again, these are the cycles that he's veiling. So it's not easy. I've never thought of approaching the church for any of this information. Um, but uh, I, I just have a, a vast collection of history books and um, uh, and that's that's how I do it. And uh, what you'll find is you can pick an event and it will either fall into a cycle or it won't. And that's what, I, you know, and if it's not in that cycle, it probably has to be in another cycle. And um, that's the key is to actually filter these out because it's about getting the signal from the noise. You know, there, there, there are there are so many patterns interlaced that you cannot see the wood for the trees to start with. And it's only once you filter them out. Uh, and then, of course, the big bonus then is that uh, when you see these cycles coming back into phase, uh, uh, then, you know, you're getting a very large event or occurrence. And I think that's something we're going to see at the back end of uh, this decade. What's interesting about the stock market and financial markets generally is price history can tell you exactly the sentiment of, you know, the day, the week, the month or whatever it might be. So if we go back to 1929, obviously we know about the crash that happened and the massive fallout over the following years. So you talked about the 90 year cycle and the potential for the the decline which was 2020 but you've also got the 100 year cycle that's going to be obviously 29 um how do you differentiate between whether the 90 year or the 100 year cycle or indeed any of the other cycles are going to be more important or less important is it just that the longer the cycle the more influence it has or is it the size of the event that means that it sort of reverberates in a bigger way how, how do you do that so that's a great question paul um the longer the cycle the greater the priority or magnitude it has that's the first thing and what we also look for then is the the um the confluence of other cycles coming in as trigger events so you you can have the super long-term cycle but then you ideally need a two or three more supporting cycles, and these can be much smaller cycles. Um, case in hand, with the prominence of China in 2020, was that um, uh, this? Well, actually, 2019. You know, if we went back, so I'm, I'm bringing some other cycles in here, the 30-year cycle pattern. You know, we saw Tiananmen Square that put China in the spotlight, and then you go back um, 60 years, we saw the Tibetan uprising. And we go back 120 years and we saw the Boxer Rebellion. So we could see these patterns coming together. And then we also noted that um, uh, the uh, we were in the 82 to 84 year revolutionary cycle from the Long March. So we thought China is definitely going to be changing its position. And of course, in this case, it was tied up with the pandemic. But also within that, there is the, the simple generational cycle of 18 years. It's 18.6 years. And, I, I, you know, I, I know uh, um, you both are friends of both Phil Anderson and, and Akil Patel have done a lot of research. And, and uh, certainly our uh, founder at the Foundation for the Board of Cycles, um, Edward Jew, is a big fan of this. But what we saw was that we had. So can you see we had the 
30, 60, 120 cycle coming in, the revolutionary cycle. And the shorter term cycle was this 18 and a half year trigger, which is basically one that was based on. Um, so if we're talking about pandemics here, there was um, the SARS event, 18 appointed six years earlier. And then before that, we had AIDS, HIV. And before that, we had um, uh, the Asian flu. So what happened was that we got a big set of cycles, the 82 to 84 year cycle triggered by the 18 year cycle. And th so we knew that that was that was something big. And then we we haven't spoken yet about the pandemic cycles, uh, which 100 year cycles, you know, we, we, we brief people back in 2018 to expect something big over the forthcoming three years because we had Spanish flu 100 years ago. We had the first cholera pandemic, which killed tens of millions in 1818 to 1823. And then 100 years before that, we had smallpox pandemics in North America and 100 years before that. So 1618 to 1620, 1718 to 1720, etc. 1818 to 1823, all had big pandemics as well as 1918. So you see all these clusters coming together. And so we thought that, you know, pandemic would be a cause for a crash. Now, it was a short lived crash, but it, it still took place. So this is the importance. Uh, and that's probably really it's probably blowing a lot of your brains out uh, without the visual here. Just all these numbers I'm shouting out. Uh, but the idea is that when you see this confluence of so many cycles coming together, we can then be on alert for some big event. So, you know, what I'm seeing um, uh, towards the end of this decade is potentially some troubled times as we get to 2029, because not only will it be the 100 year cycle from the 29 top, but it will also be the 90 year cycle from the outbreak of the Second World War. So you can see there is some degree for some degree of um, well, there, there is some need for some degree of caution as we approach the latter part of uh, this decade. And I think there will be some troubled times coming up. Uh, and you know, people say, well, you're a doom and gloom monger. Well, I would say not because, you know, we've just lived through some of the biggest bull markets in history and we are still at all time highs pretty much. So that's how we look at these cycles coming together. And we look for the shorter cycle to trigger the long term ones. There are some that would be suspicious of the nature of the, the pandemic and even suggest it was a it was a pandemic. Does it matter? Yeah. Does it matter whether the uh, let's say an event is real or just there's a narrative of it that gets wider acceptance? Does it matter the nature because or does, it, does the nature of it matter if it's real as long as people believe that it was real? So, so th that's a fantastic question, Tim. I mean, what what we're seeing here is that there was a perceived pandemic, right? So, um, uh, you know, what what was the nature? What was human sentiment all about? And you know, if I, if I look at, um, you know, well, you know, we weren't allowed to go shopping. We were all allowed a, whatever it was, one day walk. We were fed this narrative. You know, people went and got vaccinated uh, using uh, drugs that um, weren't tested in the, to the same standards of rigor as um, previous medications were needed to be tested. So the, the, you can see this mass psychology of of sort of fear and, un, you know, and, and sentiment that's you know unsettling. So in that respect, that took place. Um, whether it's a, a pandemic or a plandemic, I have heard that. I've read it, and um, 
I'm open to uh, being told uh, or, or learning more in due course. And I think that those the truths will come out. There are certainly shorter cycles that would suggest that um, uh, we, we will learn more about what's taking place over the next 18 months. But, you know, one of the other interesting things was what happened to airline stocks at the very beginning of 2020? Well, they absolutely collapsed because air travel collapsed. So if we go back this 18.6 year trigger cycle, that took us to pretty much the month of 9-11. Well, what happened to airline stocks on 9-11? So you can see how this now replicates in financial markets, this sort of stuff. Um, so, so these are the sort of patterns that, uh, you know, we can't harness all of them. We can't capture all of them, but you can see how they play out. So the idea here is that, you know, in a longer term trading and investment and portfolio management directory, then, you know, something like the year 2037, which would be, you know, 36, two, two, 2037, 2038, will probably see a, a lesser pandemic cycle, but there will probably also be some impact on aviation and it might be something else as well. Um, and then again, the hundred year cycles came. Most of the airlines started in 1919, so they were a hundred years in from that. Um, 1919 to uh, 1920, and again, you know, if you look at that cycle for aviation, and you add 50 years to that, that takes us to 1969-1970. That was Concorde and the beginning of the jet, uh, well, the, the taking off of the jet age and the arrival of the Boeing 747 jumbo. So this is how these things seem to work. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know. I'm fascinated by it. But these are the patterns that unfold. So I think, you know, again, in answer to your question, Tim, it's a perceived event based on human psychology. Mm. I have a related question, which is, I mean, long, long-standing listeners will know that we've been, or I've been nursing positions in particularly precious metals that haven't haven't behaved as, as I might have expected them to have done, given the macro backdrop. But we were, having, we were discussing this earlier today, and the one thing we were discussing was the fact that gold in isolation is probably one of the most heavily politicized, if not most politicized assets in the world, along with maybe the 10-year US Treasury. And so, so the question is, does it matter whether the price is, let's say, a legitimate one or a confected one through manipulation? Does that matter as either, or is it simply the price is taken as the price and we go on the base of the price for good or for bad? So... Another great question. So, as we know, gold has been pegged for a very long time in, at different phases in history. So, um, if we go back, there was a massive commodity boom in 1920, and um, we weren't able to assess that from a cycles viewpoint on gold because gold was pegged. However, silver was free floating and made a tremendous sort of high there. And it was off that um, 1920 boom that we knew we were going to expect a high in 2010. And there were other cycles that brought in the 2008 high. So the answer is uh, the cycle comes in, but it might not replicate because the price was not allowed to operate freely. Mm. That makes sense. You mentioned sentiment and people's individual sentiment and how you could kind of map that and track it. I, I found that fascinating because I never thought of actually doing that. But that comment reminded me of a documentary that I'd seen that interviewed people who had won the lottery and then interviewed them a year later. And what was really interesting is people, were, you know, day to day would normally say, you know, today I was out of 10, I'd rate it at a seven and 
you know, yesterday was a four and, you know, this great thing happened and it was a nine and what have you. And when they won the lottery, it's sort of, obviously you've got that, that massive high and, you know, they're super happy and everything's changed for them. But then after a year, everything kind of stabilized and their readings or their sentiment readings went back to exactly what it was before as though they hadn't won the lottery. And, it just made me think of how markets are like that, where you have a big event and it's all about adjusting and you have that big sort of wave that causes a, a massive sort of um, sentiment change. But then we have this ability to just deal with it and then things go to a sort of back to a sort of normal. And it's, it's, it's really weird how such a big event like winning the lottery could do that. But I guess it's also the same with the way the markets work in in terms of you know say a crash or, um, or or something like that and how it gets absorbed and dealt with over time. And of course, I think when you're looking at markets, you're looking at people anyway because people are the markets. Um, certainly at the moment, anyway. I mean, maybe fifty years from now, it might be all AI trading. You won't need people to trade anymore, which I, I kind of doubt anyway. But um, but it's, it's that, that underlying sentiment that I found interesting, how, how you could probably at some stage, um, you know, literally map, map your own. If people wanted to sit down and do it, they could, I suppose, but it would be, it'd be quite an onerous task. Well, uh, that's a, a really fascinating question, Paul. So let's start off with the, the market side first. So, when a market is moving up and down, if you look at the equivalent human psychology, and then we can relate this back to the lottery. So the equivalent human psychology would be like just a normal day, a normal life, and you are contained within the value structures and the financial bounds to which you operate. Okay, Then we find we get the mania. The mania comes in, and um, everything, as we know, is based on hope, fear, and greed. So uh bitcoin's a classic case you know oh yeah have you heard about this bitcoin and i have to say i laugh i laugh about this uh my wife laughs less because she said andy why don't we just go and put a few thousand pounds into bitcoin <laughs> this was way back and she i said why do we want to waste that or why don't you know we just want to throw it away so i have to say had i taken her advice <laughs> that would have at the peak would have been a very 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 substantial a nine-figure sum uh, but um we didn't and that was it uh, so this is the story of of um perceived value isn't it so what happens is that we all have our own perceived values and right now there's no great bull markets bear markets going on uh or well, maybe there are you know we're at new highs in in some of the uh um equity indices but people generally has their own view now if we go back to Bitcoin, which is a great example, what happens there is we go to uh, the pub or we're having a nice bottle of red or something and we're chatting away. And uh, the next thing is, ah, oh, somebody mentioned Bitcoin and uh, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should have some. Yeah, I've got a bit of money sitting around. So the next thing is it becomes a hysteria as mass psychology jumps in. And this is what happens with sentiment, you know, and, and this is this is where market timing is so, so important because. You know, look what happened when um, Putin went into Ukraine. OK, people were saying oil was going to 200. OK, that, that most people commentators were saying we're going to see 200 before we see 100 again. 
and it went to what was it, 116. Uh, and we had major cycles for that week. So we knew at that point to be ready. So this mass psychology is being stirred up by media. And, uh, you know, this sentiment, let's just digress and look at this human sentiment. You know, now, um, I actually, uh, I was going to say, yeah, I used to quote John Lennon the, the day John Lennon died, but most people weren't born then. <laughs> I, um, I was at school, I have to say, but I remember coming down and the, the, and the Radio 4 was on and, and there was this mass sort of feeling of, John Lennon's being killed. And the same with Princess Diana, you know, in the in the late 90s. Uh, so, and 9-11, all these things create this mass psychology. Now, most people never met John Lennon. Most people didn't meet Lady Di. And most people haven't been to New York. So it's the media that's creating this connection, that's creating sentiment, that's creating this extreme in this case of negativity or depression or sadness. Equally, you know, Bitcoin is going to 8 million or whatever. And if I have one Bitcoin this time next year, Rodney, you know, we'll all be retired and all the rest of it. Um, so th this idea is perpetuated by belief systems of hope. And then when we get to extremes and it starts crashing, it was well, hope and greed to start with. The fear kicks in. So I think that's how the market psychology works. But if we come back to the lottery winners, I think there's two things there. What the lottery thing does is, you know, you say, um, Paul, that after a year they, they get back to a normal pattern. I think some people don't. I think some people end up in a worse situation. Yeah. And what yeah. it is, it's it's the perception of the value of money. It's the perception of the value of money. So if you had X millions, 10 millions, whatever, you know, uh, then you believe you are going to buy freedom. But ultimately – the, the quality of your life really is about the people around you and the passions you follow. And yeah, you know, if you're into motor racing, yes, you can go and buy some nice cars or, you know, whatever. But for most people, it's really about the people that they like to see, you know, you might, might to meet in the pub or you might have round or you'd like play sports with or your peers and mentors and people that, you know, inspire you. And what you realize is that money is then a basis of transaction and it doesn't necessarily and money directly doesn't buy you happiness just because you've got a million or 10 million more in the bank. You're not. It's a value. It's it, they're tokens, aren't they? You've got to turn those tokens into something that gives you an emotional reaction to create the sentiment, if that makes sense. And I think that's where the point comes in. And uh, you know, I have to say, oh, I was quote that um, I drive fairly sort of normal cars these days, but I have had some nice cars. And for me, the journey was, you know, I got the greatest thrill out of the journey, you know, amassing the, the amounts to go and buy them. And um, and uh, then, you know, getting bored with them within a few weeks or months and so on. So, you know, I've done that now. <laughs> um, so I think therein lies the thing is it's how you perceive something's going to be. And I think this is very important in trading and investing, because if we're trading, then realistically, what's our game? Well, our game really is to uh, get the odds on our side, manage the risk, have an entry point, and an exit point. And, and that's it. That's, that's what we're doing. We're just getting from A to B. Uh, what you do with that money is a different thing altogether. And they're two different games. I think there's also an element of sort of emotional mean reversion to this, that by all yeah, accounts, absolutely. By all accounts, if if people have really terrible things happen to them as well, like say the, the the loss of use of all your limbs, for example, which would be traumatic to anybody that experiences it, again after a certain period, it might be six months, maybe a year, 
your emotional range is, is pretty much back, apparently is pretty much back to what it was before you had that, that traumatic accident. So whether it's very good things happening or very bad things happening, after a while, everything seems to sort of stabilize out. I think you're absolutely right. So, you know, and that's why, because we have this reversion to the mean, is that, you know, when we get these extremes of sentiment, capitulation or blow off moves, at some point, everything just returns to the mean, doesn't it, really? But there is a really, really tragic aspect to sort of human nature, which is this, I think it's been described as a hedonic treadmill, which is everyone wants to get stuff and acquire money and acquire wealth and acquire things with that wealth. And you get your property or you get your cars or whatever, but... As, you're, as, as Paul's already intimated, it, the, the, the halo effect of that really rubs off very, very quickly. I, I fully agree with that. You know, if, if you ask people what they really, really want or whatever, for most people, they just probably want to hang out with their friends and family and uh, pursue something that they're very passionate about. But what we think we want is to have more money than our neighbours. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's to some extent, you know, uh, a principle of the Western society, isn't it? Because you can go east to some of the uh, more religiously, uh, I don't want to say advanced because I don't want to be judgmental, but, you know. They, they, more, spirit, more spiritually inclined. Uh, exactly, yeah. And then, you know, you can go into some of the Eastern religions and Hinduism and things like that where they actually there are certain sects there that actually really say materialism takes you away from the true spiritualist path. So your comment about the uh, about oil following the Russian invasion of Ukraine reminded me of exactly the same situation when the US went into Iraq and everyone was buying oil beforehand. And then when it actually happened, people who didn't understand markets were really surprised that oil collapsed. But of course, the market works on the basis of of, of information that's unknown. Once it's known it's in the price and this is a basic technical um rule that once it's in the price it's 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 adjusted to it and therefore it's no longer inverted commas information people know that it's happened so you can't trade off it because everybody knows it it's not the market trades off new information so that element of sentiment which is obviously extremely important and something that i know that you look at because you look at the commitments of traders um uh, data which tells you when the market is becoming heavily skewed. And one of the elements that we've talked about on the show many times that is possibly what I think is the most consistent in terms of being useful in trading is to be a contrarian. And I think most people, no matter what their method of analysis, would agree with that. So I'd, I'd like to talk about your your work with the commitment of traders data and how you apply that with the study of cycles and and how you started doing that in the first place yeah so um what what we found um or what i found in my work is that timing markets is all good um and uh there's nothing that's perfect uh, let's let me just be honest um we, we are wrong from time to time but what i would say is the batting average is a good one so we do get an advantage over that so one of the things that we can protect. We can project points way into the future, and um, um, we know they're going to be pivot points. But are they going to be highs or lows? We don't know. That's the true answer. But what we do know is, as a market approaches a window uh, that's coming up, we know the direction of that market. So it's either heading up or down. Really, it's trending at this point. 
So we need to, A, to protect that trend or protect that position rather, not the trend, and B, then let the market confirm if there is a reversal or a pullback and then set up the risk management accordingly. So in order to try and get further odds on our side, because as far as I'm concerned, everything's all about incremental gains. There is no holy grail. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you think you, you had a, a lottery win size trade because you bought some options once, I can assure you it's probably the one and only time. Uh, or you might do it a couple of times and the rest of the time you'll give that money back. So with that in mind, we have a turning point in the future. Is it going to be a high or a low? So how do we get the odds on our side? Well, the first place to start and uh, is seasonality. So gold, for example, Tim, as you know, has some very clear seasonal patterns. And uh, so does oil. And most people know about the Santa Claus rally across Western equities that, you know, that for the back end of the year, which, again, we did witness some degree this year. So now we know a rough possible direction, but seasonality fails uh, as well from time to time. So what we find is the commitment of traders data is all the information issued uh, by the CFTC in America for the U.S. futures contracts. And they're particularly valuable in in commodity trading. Uh, Well, not just what grows out of the ground, but any of the commodities or the or the equity indices or the currencies is we can see what the smart money is doing. So this refers exactly back to what you said, Paul, a few minutes ago, where, you know, when the US went into Iraq, the price of oil went up and then it dumped. And Joe Public obviously gets in, goes long as the price is dumping, you know, because uh, they Joe Public is usually the, the net loser. So what we can see here is that the smart money, are, you know, the commercials, as they're known, the, the hedgers, these are the people that, uh, are hedging, so they might be hedging for a, you know, a chocolate company or or a grain company. You know, they might be producing chocolates or grains or whatever, uh, or they they might be farmers, and they know exactly what's going on, and so they know what they're, you know, they all say this is not a bad crop or this is a good crop or actually the crop isn't going so well, uh, therefore the price is probably going to go up and so on. They will act accordingly, and if we watch. Basically, as the price of a commodity or an instrument goes up, they will the, the hedges, the smart money tends to sell because they're getting more for each time it goes up. And they get to a point where they can they can sell no more because they've committed the whole, you know, crop or whatever it is. And therefore, we know that there isn't going to be a change in trend. So that's the first point. Now, these changes in trend, these cycles play out over several weeks and months, and therefore they're very difficult to trade unless you can time them. That's that, that's the next point. Then the other people are the non-commercials. So these are the professional hedge funds, the, the people that are, tra- are, are trading larger amounts. Now, these guys are trend followers. So when they're following a trend, for the most part, they're making money. Where these guys are wrong are at the beginning and the end of a trend. So when you see the hedge funds, the, the non-commercials with extremes of positions, you can bet your bottom dollar that we're possibly on the verge, well, we are likely on the verge of a reversal, especially if we then compare that to what the smart money is doing, if they've got to the point where they're probably going to run out of stuff to sell. So when we see these extremes, we know we are sitting on some incredible opportunities. And then the ability to to fine tune these using daily, well, monthly, weekly and daily cycles helps us to, to nail the equivalent points. And if this also ties up with seasonality, we've got at least three points of reference. 
So we created this platform, uh, which, you know, obviously is updated every week because that's the CFTC releasing their data. And within that, there is so much information coming out. We've created a load of filters. So we immediately have assigned it. We created an index and we can see which markets are extremes. And we would look at those and then dive deeper in there. And then, of course, we're back to technical trading and uh, um, geometry, as I call it. And, uh, uh, you know, are we at important price objectives? Are we at a Fibonacci extension? Are we at a doubling of a range? Are we at the top of a channel or a pitchfork? Uh, and do we have a mathematical time cycle? So if we have all these things together, we're in a position to either, you know, cash in on a position that's open. And equally, if it's heading the other way, we can look to see if a bottoming or topping patterns made and we can look to see if we can set up for a long or a short position accordingly. So what this really does is it gives us a deep dive there, uh, Paul, into what the smart money's doing. And we can see things that are an extreme. So where this really came into its own, and I, I'll be the first to hold my hand up, um, looking at the GAN stuff back in 2007, eight, we knew oil was probably, you know, 144 is a magic number. And oil had never been that high. And 2008 was a part of a super master cycle uh, for commodities going back to the Civil War. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, we knew that that was possibly a price target. But if you looked at the behavior then, which I wasn't doing at the time, uh, of the um, the um, the smart money, we knew or they knew then they knew that um, it was going to collapse. And it went from one hundred and forty seven dollars in the front month down to thirty two within a matter of weeks and months. And that's the sort of information that was actually the trade that uh, I wasn't part of that thought, you know, now is time to pay attention to the commitment of traders data. So the other thing is when you look at this stuff and you think a market's coming to a double bottom so, or a double you know, top. So, we're, again, we're, we're trading technically here. If we see that the uh, behavior of the, the commercials, the smart money is in a is behaving in a certain way we know that that double bottom is going to hold but if we see for example there is less buying coming in at that point uh, as we approach a double top we know it's going to fail we know at that point the smart money doesn't think it's going to hold and therefore it's going to pull back pretty sharply uh, so we get some clues here and what we do is we plot all these things out in the platform and that allows us to get a good inkling of what might happen next how often does that smart money get it wrong? Well, the smart money really never does get it wrong because they are the smart money. They are controlling those products. They are controlling the mining of something, uh, the um, the production uh, of the grains. Now, where it does go wrong is when you get, say, for example, a, a massive frost that kills off the coffee, cr coffee crop or something like that or where there's a coup that wasn't anticipated in the Ivory Coast, which impacts cocoa. Um, that's where, th that those are the things it won't catch. But again, you know, if word gets around that something's happening or there might be some political change or whatever, then that gets filtered down and built into the price. But it, it's the sudden um, uh, natural events and disasters that will not be caught by that. And that, that's where the time cycles come in and help very well, because they just do seem to catch these things. So we had um, Ian William on from Charteris on episode 172, and he talked about the foundation for the study of cycles, which was a fascinating conversation. And 
lo and behold, you're on the board of the foundation of the study of cycles. Could you tell us a bit about what, what that is and, and what you do? Is there a foundation sure. for the study of cycles? That's right, yeah. <laughs> the foundation for the study of cycles. So, well, um, well let, let's explain what it was all about. So, uh, the United States lived through the Great Depression, uh, the, the 29 crash, and we are in that 90-year cycle from the Great Depression right now. You know, we're, we're, we're the equivalent point there is 1934. And came out, and in 1941... Uh, the U.S. presidency looked back and they thought, can we, could we have predicted this and therefore lessen the impact of this type of event? And so they put their chief economist, a guy called Edward Dewey, uh, in charge of this. And Dewey was a great researcher and he was probably one of the first to document uh, the 18.6 year cycle. And he found it was prevalent, not just in markets and commodities, but also he looked at everything from the growth of different species of animals and uh, you know, the, the, the number of rings in trees, you know, when you slice them up and all this sort of stuff. And what they did then really was all about finding some degree of predictability and some patterns that were matching. So that goes back to 1941. Now, it, it's had a quite a rough, the foundation's had quite a rough ride since then. And in the 80s and 90s, uh, it was a, a very big ongoing concern that was supported by a lot of hedge funds and um, uh, major players in the markets. And, uh, you know, you've got to remember, not everybody had access to computing power then and so on. And then from there, <clears throat> It kind of fell into decline in the late 90s and, um, two, well, more so the 2000s. Uh, and what happened was that uh, we were able to identify, well, I was just talking to Dr. Richard Smith, who um, is uh, somebody who does a lot of work on financial cycles and uh, data signal processing, so the curves there. And uh, we, we, we had this dream. We were actually both speaking at a conference over in Nashville um, and uh, – we have this vision that it would be really nice to resurrect the foundation uh, properly. So uh, about five years ago, I got wind of the fact that um, those who were running it were no longer running it due to uh, one of the characters being deceased. And we were, we moved pretty quickly to uh, capture the assets and uh, bring them back. And Richard has really invested a lot of his uh, um, own money into this. And what we now do is um, – we are back into researching all sorts of stuff from war cycles, uh, behavioral cycles, financial cycles. I mean, right, right now in its present form, we, we have uh, a great bias towards markets because that's what people want. And that way we can run it. I mean, it, it is a nonprofit. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, we, we have this app available where people can project forward using data signal processing, which is like Hearst cycles and things like that. So our vision is to grow this back to where it was in the 70s, 80s and 90s and, and have uh, we already do have uh, some significant funds getting involved and uh, and basically invite people to come and contribute, write articles. We've revamped the magazine, myself and uh, one of uh, the other board members. We edit that um, this next week, uh, next couple of weeks, we're going to be holding a conference and, uh, you know, we do this twice a year. 
So the idea is that we try and get some big name speakers coming in. And it's all to look at how cycles repeat mathematically and um, um, and, and, um, and particularly this 18.6 year cycle, which is the generational cycle. And, you know, all the long term cycles pretty much. You know, for example, the 90 year cycle is five lots of 18 and the 72 year cycle is um, is four lots, etc. So you can see these patterns repeat. So that that's the overview of where we're at with the foundation. Uh, it is a vision to we we, I, we also I don't know if it's going to happen, but, you know, personally, I'd like to see the younger generations get involved with this stuff and uh, uh, see if they can develop and, you know, learn this stuff and use it to their advantage. Because if you do see this idea of, you know, there's a degree of predictability, then you can be prepared for things and that would make the world a better place. So how much of what you do is pure maths and just studying, putting data in? Uh, I know you've got some software that breaks down the cycle on on the the different types of cycle on the, the, the study of cycles website. And you've got some advanced software that's just come out and, um, you, you know, you can subscribe to that. How, how much of it is that type of, of pure data and and mathematics against the sort of stuff that you've been talking about right now with, or, or, you know, today with the, you sitting down saying, well, I think this could be an important cycle and we should look at this and, you know, this other cycle that's coming up and that sort of thing. Do you, do you have like a committee where you, you, you discuss these things? Yes, we have uh, at the foundation, we do have the board and uh, we meet uh, monthly and, um, have a look at this sort of stuff. So where we're at right now really is is based upon the the uh, the data signal processing stuff, which is really you know it's based on Hearst cycles and the the relevant cycle lengths that they can find. And it's sort of what we do effectively. Well, what the app does is effectively reverse curve fit it and then project it forward. So it's not without its limitations. But that's one thing. I mean, the stuff I do is is very different to this. But when you combine it all again, you're going to get some incremental gains, you know. So if you look at some of the GAN techniques, these are somewhat different. Um, so uh, then we have, uh, you know, the more sophisticated versions, uh, including those that run intraday. And, you know, certainly um, the uh, what this advanced data signal processing that we're doing at the foundation will do, you know, will we'll give you a pathway that will we'll get the odds on your side for a certain time period. And then it needs to be recalculated. So I think it's all great stuff. And, you know, it's very much in its infancy. I mean, I know that everybody's talking about AI, but I, I, I'm not convinced that markets can absolutely be cracked. I, I just don't think it's happened. It's going to happen because AI is based on what goes in. So garbage in, garbage out. You might get some incremental gains, but we're never going to get I don't think the, the day markets become totally predictable, they won't exist. But because that's that's the definition of a market, right? It has to be degree of unpredictability. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's what we're doing there. I mean, the stuff I do is somewhat different. You know, as I say, I look at these super long-term patterns, and some of them are are linear in that they will repeat at, say, 30-year patterns or 100 years. That's a good one we've spoken about quite a bit. The 82 to 84-year discontent or revolution cycle, that sort of stuff. Um, and they will just spin out on a linear basis. But then we can also use Fibonacci timing, which I'm sure a lot of your people do, where you can take two points and then expand them by uh, different ratios. And it's when those points intersect with linear cycles that we get major events. 
and I think that that's a, a pretty important point to make. So if we take a, a major event, uh, for example, like the assassination of Kennedy in 1963, would you then look 90 years ahead and say, or 100 years ahead and say there's a chance that a president would be assassinated on on that 100-year cycle, it, or does it not work like that? Um, well, yes and no. So 22nd of November, 63, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. But what we would see here is that yeah, we can project, you know, so so let's put this into context. 22nd of November 2023 was 60 years to the day and nobody was assassinated. Um, so on a one-off simple cycle basis, it's not going to happen. But if we found that there are, there are a whole series of cycles coming together of different lengths, um, then we're going to get some degree of higher probability and that's the, the other important thing about um, cycles. Uh, uh, and, it, you know, I've learned it almost the hard way now, is that you can get a huge confluence of cycles and nothing will happen, despite the fact you're expecting something huge to happen. Well, I don't know why. There's different theories here. It might be that the cycles cancel each other out. OK. And the other thing is that a confluence of cycles is a backdrop. It's the stage. And if there are no actors on the stage, then nothing is going to happen. And I think that's a very important point um, is is that, you know, you've got to look at the underlying conditions as well. So uh, that is a key point is that everything comes together and we're prepared. It doesn't mean something is definitely going to happen. So in that case, would you be, say, looking at a president? So if a president in a hundred year cycle was uh, perhaps more leaning towards not going to war and you, you get the sense that they're upsetting the status quo and the, you know, the military industrial complex. And you think what they're doing is very unusual and unlikely to be sustained. And then, then you get like a hundred years and think, well, actually that's very similar to what perhaps Kennedy was doing. This guy better watch out or this woman better watch out. Um, would you put that together and say maybe something's going to happen? Well, well, one of the things that we did write about in the previous two elections was I was looking back at super long-term cycles. And one of the magic numbers is this 144. So, again, if you're into GAN, you'll understand that. And the 144-year cycle really did portend a very difficult election and uh, uh, basically involved Ulysses S. Grant and various other characters uh, and it really was a playing out of the same pattern with Trump saying everything had been stolen and so on. And, um, you know, you have to really ask the question, well, is America a leading democracy? Was America a leading doc democracy? But if you say, well, the elections are unfair, historically, rightly or wrongly, we've probably thought of third world nations and so on. So I don't know. I mean, no election is going to be perfect. Uh, but equally, uh, if you're going to run a narrative that's that and you'll you know stir your supporters up then you are going to have this sort of impact and 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 the key cycle point is it it's just it's a degree of contentiousness that's what there was 144 years previously um to, to be quite honest looking at so you will get these flavors of um you know if you can look back in one of the things that um i haven't done this yet for this year purely this is just too much too much else to look at right now but i'll, I'll do it as the year goes on and you can pattern match and look and see back, you know, the key key cycle years. And 
you know, did you suddenly if we map them all out, you know, are we seeing a bias towards the Democrats? Are we seeing a bias towards uh, the Republicans? Are we seeing potential uh, outliers coming in? You know, if you look at the patterns and they repeat, what sort of person are we seeing? So with that, you know, we can maybe say, well, in this case, we're, we maybe get a Republican president who was, who's an outlier. So we might not even know who they are yet. Or, or you know, we'll get somebody that's well known, et cetera, because you can see, well, this person did a second term, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about looking at the flavors. And, and to be quite honest, presidential election prediction, which I know Gan talks about as well, is very complex. And to be, and I'm not sure if there's any great merit in it. To be quite honest, so. Uh, uh, but um, is that it, is that because the markets theory, will do whatever they're going to do anyway? So, sorry, I didn't mean to go. Over I'm there. sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I, is that because the markets are going to do what they're going to do anyway, regardless of the politician? A bit like. You know, when Clinton was going to be was being impeached because of you know the, 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 his affair scandal, the markets didn't really. The markets were going up, so nothing really came of it. And it's like the underlying market determines um, whether it kind of reverses into the presidential situation, if that makes sense. So if we're in a a bullish year, it will just be bullish regardless of who gets in. But it will appear as though that event has caused that to happen, if if, if that makes yes, sense. right. Yeah. So we're talking about cause and effect. So yeah. if we just take the simplistic four-year presidential pattern, then the election year pattern tends to be flat to start with and then gets more bullish as the year goes on because the incumbent, if they're running again, wants to uh, create a nice economy and a feel-good factor to get people to vote for them. So that's for sure. One of the things that um, I had noticed, but only three samples, was that if we look at the late 1700s, the late 1800s, and then the late night, um, then um, basically what we find is that the last five years of each century, and there's, there are only two samples when this happened, there are now three samples, saw massive bull markets from the year 95 to the, the beginning of the next century. So 1795 to uh, 1800, 1895 to 1900. And then, of course, we saw 1995 to 2000, seeing massive bull markets. So too small to be statistically useful, just a fascinating observation. So, you know, it's this whole idea of um, if you know where, you know, say, say we get a pattern with, that repeats more with better odds, then, um, you know, if, if you can get yourself in as president when you know you're going to be getting a guaranteed bull market, then you're going to look pretty good, aren't you, really? <laughs> and uh, the analogy would, you know, that going back way back when, when, you know, at the circus, you'd have the uh, the the guy, you know, taking a, a line of elephants around and the guy at the front appeared to be in control of them. And he was probably just leaning on the trunk of the, the first elephant, uh, moving everybody around. But I remember discussing that with a bunch of guy, uh, gang guys. And uh, it was saying that nobody's really in charge here. The ele- well, the elephant's in charge, really, i.e. the market's in charge. And if you can stand at the front of it, then you're going to look good if it's going up and you don't want to be standing in front of it when it's heading down. Probably don't want to be standing behind one of the elephants either. <laughs> no, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're wearing the right protective clothing. <laughs> Your interests outside of the markets. Oh, actually, sorry. Before we get to that, um, I think what would be really useful, I want to ask some questions about GAN, and I know they, they might end up being a little bit technical. So before we get to that, I think, perhaps we should get your outlook for 2024 and what you think people should be forewarned about 
because um, it's really interesting to hear how these cycles repeat, but it's also really nice to hear some sort of predictions of of what we should be looking out for and what you're expecting. Because undoubtedly, we're going to have you back on the show again, and it'd be really nice to talk about these these expectations and see how they pan out. Right. Okay. Well, where can we start? Um, um, I guess people want to talk about the market. So I've just this last few days and, and today um, been working on the year ahead edition, which usually goes out a bit earlier. But uh, in there, I tend to put a market forecast in. I use some of the techniques that Gan looks at. But what we found is some of the key years, out of the key years we're looking at, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight out of the 11 years see big bull markets. Okay. Uh, then we have uh, one, two, three. Three actually seven C bull markets. There's one different cycle, but there's let's say seven C those three C sideways moves. Now in those sideways moves, there has been a pullback. So it's not like they finish uh, where the market opened for the year. It means they did headed down through the year and then came back up again. And only one of them, which is the 50 year pattern, saw a um, uh, a big decline. So on that basis, but this is very simplistic, we would have to say we are probably looking at a higher close at the end of this year. Now, many of you will be familiar with the decennial cycle. Years ending in three tend to be bullish. Well, look at the sentiment at the beginning of last year. Everybody was saying it's going to crash, it's going to crash. And actually, we got a higher close. Years ending in four are also bullish, but not as bullish as um say, uh, um, years ending in three. Now, when I look at these patterns, the other thing is that um, Gann had a thing called the financial timetable, which is the 18.6 year cycle. Um, so, you know, Gann was working with this as well. And, and those who are familiar with the work of Samuel Benner, who looked at the pig iron prices, you know, the, the 18 year cycle was pretty prevalent there, along with a couple of others. Now, Gann has a thing called the financial timetable. And in that, 2024 when projected ahead, is a panic year. So uh, that is the one wild card that suggests that we could be open for a crash. So this is, again, where our market timing comes in. And, and obviously, all the cycles haven't unfolded yet. We, we you know update them on a regular basis. So we'll know when to look for them. But if we take this down and drill this down even further, looking at this, the 30-year pattern from 1994 uh, saw a a minor crash, really, at the back end of March. And uh, um, the 40-year pattern really saw a sell-off from now. So so those two patterns there suggest we could be having a sharp sell-off. And the only other two uh, patterns that show a crash or a sharp sell-off are the 50-year and, uh, and also the 45-year pattern, uh, which come in. So what we're really saying is the odds favour an up move. If we are going to get a panic, it's either going to be over the next 12 weeks or it's going to be uh, between September and October. And so that's that's where I'm at with the research right now. There'll be more to come on that. Uh, that's that one. The the wild card, I'm, I'm giving you my forecasts here. The big one I'm looking at, which uh, is we are 90 years this year on from the Dust Bowl in America. I suspect we are going to see some issues with grains in America. And uh, what happened there was the topsoil eroded. We've got these what they call these black storms where the, the, the soil was very loose and blown up by the tornadoes and so on. 
And that did quite a lot of damage to the crops. And of course, we had a loss of crop. Now, we can take this a stage further and look at the midpoint or the 45 year cycle. And at that point, that takes us back to 1979. And from 1979 to around about 83, 84, we had the farmland crisis. So this wasn't a particular land crisis, but it was issues to do with uh, interest rates, high interest rates. And many farmers were forced off the land because they just couldn't afford the rent on their farms. So I think the big one here is this idea that we're going to see some challenges to American grain farming. So that's that's something there. Um, the war situation, we are still within these um, um, the, the idea of uh, uh, the 82 to 84 year cycle. We're still within that. And what we see is that I was just doing some research on this with regards to the uh, people. Are, you know, I, somebody, one of the guys called me up and said, look, you know, you were wrong about this world war. And I was thinking, well, actually, I don't think we are wrong because uh, what we're seeing is that 54 nations are providing um, arms support to the Ukraine. 54 nations. OK, so that's all 30 NATO members plus another 24 countries. And then exactly as forecast last year, we said the wild card for this year was going to be the 50 year cycle from the Yom Kippur attack at the beginning of October. Well, we were two days out on that. Exactly what happened with the Israel Hamas situation. Uh, so we've now got Israel. We've got Palestinian supporters. We've got the Middle East. We've got Iran. We've got Yemen all coming into play. And the other thing that I do have some strong views about is really China making a move on Taiwan. And I would probably say that's probably going to be around about April. Um, eight, April, the, April this year. April this year. Yeah, I would say would be a window. Now, it doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen. As I said, you know, you can have the windows set up. There's a bunch of time cycle windows coming in. Uh, whether it happens or not is another thing. But that would be the point that uh, I would be very concerned about. Uh, there for a potential escalation in that area. It doesn't necessarily mean China's going to absolutely pile into Taiwan. It just means that there will, we will see some greater rhetoric or even some economic moves or something towards it. So there's that. In terms of the bigger picture, um, I spoke with uh, our mutual friend Akil and we did a fireside chat. And, you know, we, we, we strongly believe that the the flavors. So these those are hardcore cycles. But the hard, you know, what we're seeing really is that um, uh, we are going to see uh, the rise of AI. And I think as AI rises, you know, Gan always said, and, and, and not just Gan, but it's, you know, the, the dominant technology creates the booms and therefore the dominant technology creates the busts. So we talked, uh, Akla and I were just talking, um, and this is out on, our, on, on my YouTube channel, uh, the, uh, the uh, booms and busts of the 1800 driven predominantly by uh, the, the uh, railroad industry, especially in America, but also in Europe. So does that mean that future booms and busts are going to be driven by ad technological advancements in AI? And I think, I think that's a reasonable way to go in now the other reason just returning to this april scenario one of the cycles that's coming in is a return of sort of uh, these are more sentiment cycles that really ties up um things like the vietnam war 
the uh, dodging the draft and the returning of medals. I think there's going to be some sort of backlash uh, where we're going to see some degree of uh, pushback from all this intervention. And uh, one would have to assume that to see a backlash, there would probably be a not pleasant event before that that would create, you know, a, a, a stirring of feeling to attract that. And again, I, I really do see April as a critical month for all this sort of stuff. Um, so those, those are some of the key thoughts there. Uh, the other things, um, I talked about American Civil War and uh, what we do see, if we look at the 60 year cycle, which is three generations, that there are, if we look to see what was happening in 1964 uh, in America, 64 through to 67, we saw uh, the rise of uh, um, the KKK and the, uh, the, the, the racial discontent, um, you know, the segregation and so on. And this ran up all the way through to 67, the assassination of Martin Luther King. So what we saw here was a massive polarization in the United States that started accelerating from 64 through to 67, 68. Uh, and I think we're going to overlay that now. It's I don't think it's going to be uh, based on race now. I think it's going to be based on um, ideology, blue versus red. And I think this is going to see we're also seeing some of the, you know, as I say, the civil war cycles are coming in. So. Uh, we're also seeing cycles coming in from the the unification or, or, you know, the states entering the union. So I'm just wondering if I don't think we're going to see secession per se in the next few years. But I do think we're going to see more autonomy for states like Florida, Texas and California. So there's some snippets there, uh, Paul, I don't know if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, so that's the markets. What about... Um, Precious metals. I'm, I'm guessing, Tim, you'd be interested in what might happen to gold. M mildly interested. <laughs> mildly interested, Tim. Right. Let's see what we can offer you. Well, uh, we've got super long-term cycles coming in, and that suggests that we should be on alert for a potential major high in gold right now and maybe a pullback. And then the next strong weekly cycles come in round about um, uh first week the week ending 6th of march so these are timing anchor points so you can see how we can use this so scenario one would be we see a high and then we pull back into um uh um uh, say march and then i see gold could well go up and, and again using pitchforks and price projections i think 2400 would be a significant target in the short to medium term and i think a bit higher and of course, the other thing is that, you know, we wrote about this last year as, as a big sort of change and evolution point was the number of countries joining the BRICS nations and um, uh, the, the idea that the, the BRICS nations might create a joint currency that could be backed by gold because China allegedly has over 2000 tons and unofficially has 8000 tons of gold. Um, and this would then be a major threat to the dollar. OK. So that I think is important, but I, I do see, you know, I'm still bullish on precious metals and um, I, I do t talk to Jim Rogers uh, every now and then, and he's very bullish on silver. Um, what I am seeing is that the commitment of traders data itself uh, is showing that actually there is more to the upside in gold. So this is probably just a technical pullback that we're seeing. And of course, if we don't pull back too much, that tells us that the strength of the market is strong. You know, it is strong. And um 
very relevant. So there are other cycles this year for gold. I think it's a big year for gold and uh, and the other precious metals. And the other one that's really been sort of accumulating a lot uh, in terms of the, um, uh, the the commitment of traders' data has been palladium. You know, the 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 level of palladium uh, buying had been been going up substantially by the smart money. It's just pulled back this last three four months. But I think after that, we 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 should see this pick back up again. There's certainly the, the smart money with regards to gold is still buying without a shadow of a doubt. And so, so you said twenty four hundred is the target potentially. Yes, I've got twenty four. I think it's twenty four sixty something like that. Yeah. Right, and would that be like an um, initial target, or would that be? Are you looking at that as a kind of a major top before a correction, and then? I, yeah, I would say a major top there, and maybe uh, a pullback of two, three hundred bucks from that point. But I think you know, as we head towards the end of the decade, I, I think at this moment in time, there's good reason to be very bullish about it, and considerably higher. And uh, you know, if if we take the old tops, which have been round about you know, 2000, then, you know, we, we always look for a doubling of the range, effectively. So I, I can see 4000 on gold at some point in the not too distant future. So, Tim, any any other questions? No, uh, no, I'm 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 completely happy. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you, had me, you had me at four thousand dollars, I think. <laughs> yeah, so you'd be a happy man at that point, right? Well, I'll be happy-ish. Yeah, twenty four sixty, I think, roughly to start with twenty four twenty four sixty. Um, we'll, we'll certainly see a pullback. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting what you were saying um, about some potential kind of corrective price action in like early this this year perhaps into march because there's an expectation of an interest rate cut and some of that may come from inflation but i can't shake the the notion that there might be something in the financial system that has worried the people in charge and that's why interest rates are softening and a rate cut would have to come in maybe maybe two cuts of 25 or maybe 50 in order to deal with said situation so i'm not saying that that's definitely going to happen i'm just saying that this is this is something i'm sensing could happen and looking at the way the curve is and and how the market is trading it just makes me think that okay we're going to see a bullish year most likely and there could be some some interruptions as there always are uh things are going to start to accelerate um as we get towards the end of the year and into 2025. Um, but in between, what might cause the reason to uh, for people in charge to, 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 to lower interest rates? And that could be that that could be that negative event. So that might tie in with gold coming down, you know, risk on risk off situation and um, then the response and then that building up, a, um, a very positive trend from there. And that would fit in with, with um, the pattern of what gold might be doing. So it's, it's going to be an interesting year regardless. Um, but especially with the dollar on the way down. I mean, that, that looks looks like, uh, a, you know, a, tr- a really big trend developing is one that we've talked about many times on the show. Yeah, well, several points there. I mean, if we look at uh, the chart pattern for gold, you know, we we can pretty much identify a cup and handle pattern there, can't we? They're, they're, they've been playing out. They've been playing out. 
you know, we are really just back at the old highs um, and just sort of testing those. So it, it does suggest we're heading heading up there. But, you know, a, a drop in interest rates. Well, uh, you know, um, Tim, you mentioned um, pandemic and um, other such notions. One of the theories that I've been writing about, and it literally is just a hypothesis, is this notion that um, the 50-year pattern, and this is relevant, uh, Paul, forgive me, I'm not ignoring your question. No, 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 it's fine. um, uh, If we look at the 50-year pattern from October and uh, back to 1973, we saw the OPEC oil crisis, okay? And uh, basically, back in 73, um, uh, the the OPEC oil crisis saw what the quadrupling of the price of oil, and it brought the Western nations down to its knees. You know, we had the three-day week here, and uh, basically America, you know, they brought in the 50-mile-an-hour speed limit for all their gas-guzzling cars. America then was a net importer of oil, and that's why it really got very badly hit. So I don't know if there's a political angle on this um, latest conflict, because if the price of oil was to go racing up now, that would benefit America as a net exporter of oil. And therefore, it would create some strategic sort of strength against any potential threat from the BRICS nations developing any other type of currency and trying to depose the dollar. As you said, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, there is some clear pattern. You know, there are clear patterns unfolding on the dollar right now. So I think there is some sort of threat there, and it, that might just all be conjecture. Well, it is conjecture, and it, it, there might be some sort of conspiracy theory there or whatever. I don't know. But um, that then would then, you know, if, if we see some sort of challenge to that, then I think, you know, I, I mean, the dollar is a mess, isn't it? At some point, ever since the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement and Nixon printing the dollar and uh, everybody else paying for it, let's face it, if, if we're being honest about it and taking names away from it, but those in charge of the dollar have abused the situation. That's it. And at some time, the chickens come home to roost. So I, I don't know what to say about that. But to deal with this sort of stuff, I would agree, Paul. I think there has to be a drop in interest rates, but I think it will be a temporary pullback because, you know, as we know, in terms of Elliott Wave and so on, there are always pullbacks in any trend. And uh, we do need to see a pullback. Um, Some of the work I did previously looked at roughly a 36 year cycle in interest rates, but again, not enough data to make it conclusive. So um, I I think we could see a pullback, but then I think we'll see higher rates thereafter. Your outside job as well as everything that you're doing, so you're obviously a very busy man, is is flying jets. Now, I just wondered what your opinion was of this this most recent uh, situation with the 737, given that, uh, you know, uh, we don't... It's not every day we get to talk to an actual airline pilot, and it's, uh, it's not one that I'm going to let go without asking some questions. So... Um, so what, what, what's your opinion on it? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I'll be somewhat guarded about this. Yes, I do fly. I fly part-time base, um, part-time bases. I fly wide-body jets around the world and uh, have been involved and still am heavily involved in uh, training and developing these skills. So um, this particular case, so let's uh, zoom out and uh, uh, look at the big picture. Um 
there have been some design flaws, clearly. Um, let, let, let's look at this generically. We don't want any lawsuits from very big operators. <laughs> um, what we saw is that during the pandemic, um, the 100-year cycle kicked in for aviation, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, airlines scaled back, and therefore airline manufacturers took a massive hit. And uh, basically, on the you know, uh, as a result of this, cutbacks have to be made. And um, we don't know for sure what exactly happened here, but one of the trend changes has been that the uh, Federal Aviation Administration that um, regulated uh, that regulates the development and certification of new aircraft gave more autonomy to manufacturers to self-certify things. Uh, and this really came out with the two crashes, which are now um, well documented on the uh, Boeing 737 MAX, the Lion Air crash and the one in Africa. Um, so, so with that set as a background, there have been certain precedents that allow manufacturers to or that allow but rely on the manufacturers to thoroughly test and be honest about this sort of stuff we don't know what happened here at the moment but there has obviously been some sort of design failure this particular aircraft really only went into service in october so it's only what three months in service and uh, i was reading today um that uh, the they had already um uh, quoted several things in the technical log there have been several warnings, pressurization warnings. So, uh, you, you know, you can fly, you know, it's like getting into a car and if your cigarette lighter doesn't, well, we, know, we don't have cigarette lighters anymore. Let, let's say something, you know, your fog lights don't work, then, you know, you can still drive it, but you probably don't want to drive it in fog. So you put a restriction on it. In the same way, they would put restrictions and a, and a time during uh, which that, you know, they might say it's 10 days, two weeks, three months, 120 days. You know, and it has to be fixed within that time. So there was clearly some restriction on it, but there was also something that was underlyingly wrong on this particular aircraft there. Uh, so I think the investigations will bring it out. But what this, you know, the whole aviation industry has a lack of experience now in air traffic control. We're getting a lot of near misses uh, because a lot of the people just left the industry. A lot of the uh, senior pilots left the industry uh, during the pandemic say air traffic controllers and airline management engineering management as well engineers there's a big shortage of aircraft engineers as well so and, and you know these skills in you know in apprenticeships and so on you know it's seven years to learn and another seven years putting it into practice and if these people have all changed left gone into other professions or areas because their livelihoods was threatened by what happened during the pandemic you know so you cannot replace seven to 14 years worth of knowledge overnight so that therein lies the the significant major root cause of incidents like the one you've mentioned paul on to the um discussion of uh, the september 11 attacks we had a um gentleman on who's written a book called 180 and the uh, although I, have, I still haven't read it yet, Tim, don't 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 judge me. I've just been busy. Um, the um, one one of the comments he made was that the seven six seven aircraft couldn't fly at that speed at that low a, an altitude. It wasn't possible. Now, given that you're a, a pilot, <laughs> I think it's a fair enough question to ask. That that was an area of conjecture. 
So is is it possible? Well, what I would say to you is um, uh, I have flown 767. Um, and uh, consider, let, let's put this into a logical situation for people who are not pilots. When you fly an approach into landing, um, you are at some point 200 feet away from um, the runway or, or above the airfield or, or 500 feet. And you are also at a relatively slow speed because you're bringing it into land. You've probably got the flaps out and you might be doing something like 130 knots, 140 knots. So on the basis that every aircraft on the approach does that, it is absolutely possible to do that. Yes, absolutely. You, you can bring that aircraft down, put the flaps out, even lower the gear and slow it down. And the aircraft will not stall. And you, unfortunately, in this case, they did fly these aircraft into buildings. So uh, I'm not saying that that they didn't. I was just what that was just one technical aspect yeah. to say that it wasn't that sort of plane. Now I think I think they they did fly that plane into the twin towers personally, but it was. Um, but then the then the question is who is they? Well, w- would would an inexperienced pilot be able to 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 hit a target that that accurately i mean that seems in some ways extraordinary could it could a, a seven what were these seven six seven seven could six, a seven six seven be piloted remotely using um remote control which is something that some pilots have suggested may have happened in other words so the, think, whoever was on board wasn't flying that plane well the truth is we don't know hmm. so both of those uh, notions let's examine those two well first of all if you keep the autopilot in and you know how to press the right buttons it's not that difficult. Now, it is alleged that the the people involved had had lessons, flight simulator lessons and so on. And um, uh, certainly uh, uh, in the days uh, gone back, I used to take visitors into the flight simulators and literally use a 747 or a uh, 767. And you can show people how to maneuver aircraft using autopilots and pressing buttons very easily and very quickly. So I think it's entirely feasible that with a reasonable understanding of which buttons to push when the aircraft could be flown uh, using the autopilot by people on board. But also now we're looking back at 2001, we're looking back 23, 22 to 23 years, uh, Tim. And um, what we see now is drone technology is so sophisticated that absolutely, you know, these, uh, in fact, Boeing have developed, I think Boeing are flying a 757 around ostensibly from the ground as a test aircraft. And, you know, there is an Airbus project to have uh, uh, Airbuses with a single pilot on them. And then whilst the pilot's resting or taking a break, you know, convenience break, it'd be uh, commanded by uh, a drone operator based somewhere. Uh, Let's face it, this is what's going on in warfare now. And this is a very important concept in warfare now. There is no skin in the game. If you were doing fighter-to-fighter combat and you were in that aircraft, you knew your life uh, was on the line. But if you're sitting in a remote control center in Nevada, knowing that you're going to clock off at 6 o'clock and then head off and have dinner with a bunch of friends uh, and you're fighting against some other target that's also uh, being operated from some other drone place, Nobody has any skin in the game. So it doesn't matter if you press any buttons that take things too far. And I think that really is a massive sea change in human behavior. 
and that's where we're going to have problems. But uh, in answer to that second part, yes, it could uh, um, it could be remotely controlled for sure. Um, whether that technology was up to anywhere near the standards available now, I don't think so back then. But um, we're not party to things. But I also know, I was working um, and consulting to a very significant uh, uh, fund and uh, they were always interested in the military side of stuff. And I remember one of them showing me intelligence in about 1999, 98, um, saying that there were plans to hijack airliners and use them as missiles by flying them into buildings or population groups. And uh, that was from just intelligence that was created by former senior military um, commanders who were offering intelligence services. The book in question is, is called 180 Degrees. And as, as Paul said, we had the author of Fergus O'Connor Greenwood on um, some while ago. I think the issue for me is that uh, I mean, a lot of these issues are too technical. They're above my pay grade. But the, <laughs> what, what, what I'm more than willing to state is that the narrative as, as expressed to us doesn't doesn't stack up at all. There are so many inconsistencies in terms of accounting for why what happened, why it happened. And the fact that you can get someone's passport allegedly can survive when the steel beams on the skyscraper are melted by jet fuel, which is probably a physical impossibility. But the, the, uh, a passport from one of the alleged terrorists can be found at the bottom of the wreckage. It just seems so ridiculously implausible that there are all these sort of strange, loose ends. Uh, I think that the bottom line for me is that I just don't trust anything by, by any government at all now after the last four years. Well, I, I think that's... Uh... T totally relevant. I remember that passport thing in my comments. Well, well, hang on a minute. There was no jet. How would they find a passport that would have been absolutely, you know, disintegrated? And um, more to the point, if you're on a domestic flight, why would you bother taking your passport anyway? So, um, so that's that. So I, I agree. There are there are things here that we're not party to. Um, what I can say is that from a cycles perspective, I remember talking to a very close. Uh, friend of mine, a very big GAN person who's sadly no longer with us, uh, somebody who had very big um, uh, military interests as well. And um, uh, he basically, it was in August, it was a month before. And I was just sort of saying there are some sort of hostile, you know, warlike war cycles coming into play here. And he said, oh, Andy, I want to show you this. And he, uh, it was all fax machines in those days. He said, according to this, and I'll fax it over, and he basically said, uh, there is, um, from our information, the United States will be in Afghanistan and uh, Iran uh, and Iraq with, by before the end of the year. Mm. So, you know, I saw that before the event. Uh, so, um, I, make I, of that what you will. Exactly, that's the perfect phrase, Tim. I, I'm going too far down the rabbit hole here with this. How did you get into the GAN stuff in the first place? So um, I got this fascination with um, um, cycles and trading the Kondratiev wave. And the more I looked into it, uh, there there are some esoteric sides, which I, I was quite open to, or am quite open to. And uh, I discovered this guy allegedly, WD GAN, allegedly um, could forecast markets in advance. And, and so I tried to find information out about him and living in Britain in the early 90s, there was very little here. There was one company doing a little bit of work quoting GAN, but it was their take on them. And so um, more research I did, I Is found that out that... The Stafford family. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Was it IDS or something? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
so uh, gosh yeah um so uh, what happened then was um i was over so with the day job as you now know actually on the 767 in seattle and i rung up um, what i just ascertained was that there was a you know lambergan publishing just in washington state and um i called them up you know because in, in those days it wasn't dirt cheap to phone it was very expensive making a trunk call so i called them up from um uh seattle i spoke to a lady called nikki jones she was the custodian of all the gan work her late husband billy jones and herself had bought it from edward La- ed lambert and uh they basically it's thanks to nikki that this information still exists you know she republished the books and the courses and um that was the first call probably back in 93 94 and i bought some books from her because you couldn't even get the gan books here so you know on this basis that i couldn't get them and always being slightly entrepreneurial um i i asked her, I said, look i've got other people who want them can i start buying them off you and selling them here so uh, i uh, started a little thing in the back of investors chronicle under the headline gan because uh as I said, there was one competitor, but <laughs> that was it. So we got quite a few people coming along. And Nikki introduced me to um, actually the, the person I was talking about was very much into the intelligence, a guy called Peter Pick, who created the only GAN software known at the time. And we were still in DOS years. So um, he allowed me to sell the GAN trader program in the UK. And he always said, you know, uh, he'd only ever sold maybe a dozen programs in London, yet London was the financial capital of the world. Well, that set up a, uh, a long-standing relationship where we did a lot of research, and he had a lot of GAN material, which uh, I've now um, um, bought his library collection from his estate. I mean, he did pass a while back. And uh, so that was the journey, and we did a lot of research. And uh, the more we looked at it, this, we think, hang on a minute, there are certain things that are happening, and it would be simple things like price projections. You know, yeah, it did stop there, and then there's a few things on timing, and yes, that seems to work. But you don't know where it's going when, but you're starting to get incremental gains and the odds on your side. So the more I got involved with this, the more fascinated I became. And uh, the more I learned, having um, gained the trust of uh, Nikki uh, Jones, you know, she'd share a lot more information. And, you know, Gan was a big man into aviation. He he had sufficient funds to have airliners as his private aircraft. And he had... uh, Eleanor Smith, who was an air race winning pilot as his personal pilot. And Gan would use these aircraft to ostensibly view the soybean or wheat or corn crops from the air and judge, therefore, whether it was going to be a good crop or a bad crop. We don't know if that's actually had any um, truth in it or whether it was just a marketing ploy because very few people flew, let alone had their own aircraft at this point. So, um, so that was it. So I got to learn quite a lot about him. And then um, latterly, uh, which would be probably you know, 15, 18 years ago, um, <clears throat> see, Nikki inherited this connect- collection uh, from her late husband. And Nikki was bringing up four kids. And Cody, one of the sons, uh, uh, continues to run the business now. So I got to know Cody. And um, I went over there for 10 days. And we went through and we, we to say we catalogued the collection was probably an overstatement, but we went through and discovered some boxes that had never been opened and found all sorts of fascinating charts. And um, I helped, you know, give them some ideas about what they might be and so on. And, you know, again, looked at everything from war cycles, war patterns, um, sunspots uh, and hand 
charted everything. He must have been, you know, he was just such a workaholic. So that was that. And at the same time, you know, the fascination of, well, why does this all work? You know, what are these scientific patterns? What are these uh, mathematical uh, relationships, the relationships of physics and chemistry as well, and, and music scales all come in. And so what is this universal law that's out there? So, course i've always had an interest in spirituality and uh, uh esoteric stuff so that you know that, that's driven me further into these studies uh so that's sort of a an overview of how i got involved with with the gan work so my experience of gan has been to buy certain books and i you know met with uh the people from ids who were giving their take as you put it on on gan and they seem to have a very you know, a confident, strong understanding of how it worked. Um, but getting there's two pro there's always been two problems with understanding Gann's work. One is like you said at the top of the show, he writes very esoterically and you have to, and, and in a coded way and you have to kind of unpick that. Um, and secondly, because the work is out of, out of copyright or, I'm assuming it's out of copyright. You're not sure whether you're actually getting the source or someone's copy of the source. And therefore, unless you can know that you're, you're, you're reading his work, you don't know how accurate it is. And then on top of all of that, there was always the problem of whether it was true or not, you know, whether he did make $50 million or, or, or whether it was all just, you know, marketing and he made it all selling courses or whatever it might have been. And and so it, it's really interesting to see, um, you know, different disciplines coming together, like Elliott Wave that uses the same sort of ideas, the cycle stuff that, that uses the same ideas. Um, but getting to the, the sort of the nub of, of, of using GAN, when you were looking at, I mean, because you're in a, position that i i've never met anyone else who's who's got that close to the material um what can you say about what you, what you saw versus kind of what's out there in the, the general market can you just go to lambert gan and buy the books and and learn everything that he wanted to teach or is there stuff that is just kept aside and you know only a few people will be able to see it so oh several points to address there uh, paul first of all um uh, th there is this discussion as to whether Gan was a master marketer um, uh, and a self-promoter, uh, and I think he was pretty good at it. Secondly, there is definitely proof that he did pretty well, and he definitely did know something about trading and investing. There's no doubt about that. Most of the material is out of copyright, and therefore it's been republished by various people, and what you find there is that Gan was so precise, so precise in the way he presented anything that if somebody else republished that book and changed the page numbering, you would lose part of the plot. OK, the the, the numbers on the pages, certainly of his novel, not just that, but also, um, you know, b b books like uh, 45 Years on Wall Street, Truth of the Stock Tech, they are all very important. They all point to prices or events or something or something of relevance. Uh, so the core texts, the, the original ones, which, you know, Lambert had done pretty well to preserve, 
those are the important ones. And, uh, uh, you know, by buying them from them, you're obviously supporting the ability for them to, um, you know, keep the the, uh, the archives going because they're in a terrible state of disrepair. You know, they're, they're charts that have been sitting there for, uh, well, I guess 100 years now, some of them. Um, uh, so, uh, so there's that. Now, we talked about, you mentioned Elliott Wave. Now, Gan talks about the seven waves up. So, obviously, Elliott, we know about five up, three down, you know, one, two, three, four, five, ABC. Gan always talked about um, um, uh, the seven up uh, there. And I think that, 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 you know, so he was well into this wave structure. Uh, and I think... If you look deep enough, everything is pretty much there, veiled in it. And, and probably one of the best books, but equally the driest books, is How to Make Profits in Commodities, where he lists all the um, all the different moves across a range of markets, and uh, be it coffee, cocoa, wheat, corn, soybeans, um, and uh, hides and eggs and things like that. And the, the trick is, uh, and I, I only know one or two other people that have done this, but literally about 25 years ago, I started with a friend and colleague. We started literally hand drawing these charts out, reading each line out and plotting the next point there. And then you suddenly realize, oh, well, this is all he's trying to tell us here is that this is doubled in range or, you know, this is a 50 percent retracement. Then, you know, you look at the timing on it and uh, you have to fiddle around with that and suddenly think, aha, maybe that's a Fibonacci number of days or something like that. So I, I, I think it's all there. And to be quite honest, I don't think I don't think there ever was a holy grail. Uh, I don't think there is a holy grail. And I think, you know, uh, in most frustrating times, I always call I will say GAN is a four letter word, but it's a whole toolbox of techniques from his squares to the projections to the time cycles and of course, by putting the squares in, it encompasses most of you know the angles, etc. But of course, the most infuriating thing, um, you know, has always been, well, where where is the market going to go within this square? Because you can look at it retrospectively, and you said, oh, this line got that high, that line got the low, this one here, and and that's the big sort of mission really to um, to uh, resolve. But um, what what it what we do know is that there is some there is more than some degree of certainty there you know there there is and say anything that gives you an incremental gain in trading and investing is useful um i've been working on it how well let's see well over 30 years now and uh, i've got some ideas but you know i'd love to be able to wake up one day and say that gold is going to this price on this day and sometimes you can do it using things like the square of 9 that he uses um but to be quite honest, I don't think anybody can do it because it's and it's all to do with quantum physics. A lot of it's quantum quantum physics. So uh, but there is some pattern out there that somebody knows or we've yet to discover it. It's a fascinating puzzle, though. The problem is for drawing GAN angles is if you have a one by one angle, which is a an angle which shows that the market goes up by one point per day. So each day it moves up another point. So day one, it'd be one point, then two points and three points, etc. When you're dealing with, say, a stock, let's take Google stock that was obviously in its infancy trading at a few cents and then a few dollars. And today is trading, well, it's gone through splits and it's trading at 138, but it could be trading at $1,000. What do you class as one point per day? 
Um, in other words, using one point might not make sense. So do you use 10 points and 20 points? And how does that change? And then what angles then become important? Um, you're looking at a one by one, one by two, uh, you know, when that breaks, are you looking at angles in between the two support and things like that? The, the angles I think of are the ones that are so, so close to trend lines and so, um, distinctly provable because you can actually put that on a chart and see where it touches exactly and bounces or doesn't. So in, in many ways that, that gives you confirmation of whether something's working or not. That discipline for me is, is one that I've, I've had so I've heard so many different ways of doing it. I've got a book called Gan made easy, which is anything, but it was like the most complicated <laughs> book on Gan that I've ever seen. Um, and we used, we used to call that Gan made slightly easier, but not much. <laughs> yeah. And I found it the other day, funnily enough, and I, I'm going to have to go back <laughs> through it. But is, is that something that you've, you've got a strong opinion on as to how it should definitely be done? When Gan was trading markets and charting them, for example, a reasonable all time high would be $1.20, 120 cents in corn. Uh, or no, in wheat or something like that. So they're all trading at relatively low numbers is the point. So to address this problem of one point per day, and uh, for those of you who do look at GAN, you know, everything works in, in 360s. Uh, we, uh, if we're all happy with that concept. So any stock or um, uh, having said that, you mentioned Google, we'll have to come to that. You know, ideally you want to keep that in its original number form, which means you're going to have charts that are, 100 feet high and all this sort of stuff and um you know uh, and it's the splits that create the confusion but let's go back so if a market is trading naturally between zero and 360 um then um you'd you'd use one point per day once it trades between 360 and 720 720 being the second 360 we found that using two points per day was a better harmonic uh, and the same you know once you get to 1080 you'd use three points a day uh, uh, and so you know if you're if you're say if you've got a stock trading at say a um, thousand then you would be in the third 360 so you'd be using three points a day as your one by one angle uh, does that make sense paul that is, is, that, it, is, is brilliant. that, that is absolutely okay, brilliant. So, yeah yeah no one's ever said that before which is ah. yeah that is really good information so, so that's the first thing. Now, if you really want to get angles to work now, because, you know, for example, the S&P is wherever it's at, 4,600, 4,700, you know, <clears throat> well, the S&P didn't even exist when GAN was uh, about, but the Dow was trading at 200. Well, you know, the Dow made an all-time high at 386 in 1929 and then came down to 44. So, um, uh, you know, with, with numbers like that, again, you could use your one-by-one one angle a um, set to one point per day. But now what we would do, or what I do is use what they call the dynamic or the live angle, take the low and join it up to the high and find out that gradient and then either double it or halve it for your one by one or your, um, uh, sorry, your, your one by two or two by one angle. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Again. And that will work because it is in direct harmonic proportion to the vibration of the market. Again, brilliant. 
Um, not heard that anywhere else. Tim's Tim's wondering when we're going to get to media picks, but but I'm I'm very happy that 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 is. I'm sure there's lo- So do you teach this stuff then? Um, I, I don't anymore. I just uh, was so focused on the report and um, trading. And uh, well, I say we don't. I don't teach that, but we have got a trading course, um, which is the very best of uh, uh, the stuff that I've learned over thirty years. And and that has you know we've got very successful people using that and uh uh what i found is that um uh a uh, bit like crocodile dundee said in that movie you know you, uh, you can use angles and you can live off it but this is <laughs> i won't use the exact words <laughs> but this this tastes better uh and that's where i found the channels and the pitchforks are actually something very special now if you look at those scan squares and you can then see the channels formed in there using natural angles at one by one. OK, so those channels are in there. And if you read GAN's courses, both in the commodities course or the stocks course, more so the stocks course, where he tells you how to work with the angles, he gives you clear rules. And, he, you know, he says the market will react when it hits this angle here. And then there are other things. It says you must buy when the when this uh, when the market hits this other angle, this is a buying point. It doesn't say you must buy. This is a buying. It's an order. So he has a degree of certainty in a, in a hierarchy, which I still haven't figured out. But what I have done is, you know, the, the title of the book, Tunnel Through the Air, uh, is, you know, suggesting there's a channel there. And my, I am wondering if he was using something like a pitchfork, which actually would, would just been a normal channel because the, the numbers were were um, so clear. Because, you know, if, if you know how the pitchforks work, um, you've got the lower parallel, upper parallel and median line, in, median line in between. And the chances of going from either the lower parallel to the median line are, are 84% that that line's hit and then 50-50 of a reversal. So you've got 84% odds in your favour, especially if you can time it as well. So this is the sort of stuff we put in our course. Yes, we've got the price projection techniques, and the, there's a, a rare technique that Gan veiled very carefully that um, uh, showed you how shows us how to pick the final high or final low in a market, and that works to this very day. And that's why I have that view of gold hitting around about 24 to 2460 uh, using that technique. Um, so um, th- th- this is all all in there. Um, so that, that's our course. So we, do I teach it? It's taught online. I'm not proactively teaching one on one. Having said that, we did have a we did hold a master class back in um, at the beginning of December for people who wanted to raise their game with the, with that course. So yes and no, I guess I guess we are teaching it, but not um, it's more an online course there. And it's and it's not exclusively GAN then is what you're saying is it's um... no, it's not exclusively GAN because. Um, <laughs> When back here, sorry, I, I must bring in my dear friend Peter Pick, the late Peter Pick that I mentioned earlier. But uh, we ran some seminars in the mid '90s and late '90s, and I flew him over, and uh, um, you know there was stuff like, well, what are we going to teach? Well, you know this stuff works, and uh, this stuff looks really good. So, uh, well, can you trade it? Well, not really, but it's great for a seminar. We'll call that seminar material because everybody goes, wow. But actually, this idea of what really works and what i've done now is after 30 years plus is i've thrown away 95 percent of what i had and i just concentrate on um four five techniques that work really well 
and that give consistent returns and uh, or consistent results and help get the risk. Ma- you see, the most boring thing about trading and investing is risk management, right? Nobody wants to hear about that. Everybody wants the secret formula for the final high or the final low. But risk management is so important. And if you've got a system whereby you can manage the risk very tightly, um, then you really have got the odds in your favor. Because as I say, it's all about incremental gains. There are There is no holy grail. And, and that's where I find that these pitchforks are really good or the channels. And so just returning back uh, to the pitchfork or a channel, I think this is the tunnel through there that he was talking about. And when you see the market oscillate from the highs and lows and bounce off the median line, well, remember what we talked about earlier. This is all about behavioral sentiment. Well, that must mean our lives also bounce between the points of a imaginary of an imaginary pitchfork that lies ahead of us you know and we are in there and of course we get to an extreme in our lives maybe you know uh you have a health issue or you get married or you have a relationship issue you know these are all changes in trend within the different um sectors of our life as it were and they all bounce between these pitchforks till they get to a final point you know and you know we've all you know we're not spring chickens, so we've all lived life. We've had sort of experiences, positive and, and challenging. And these these are sentiment experiences that are mapped out if we can map our own chart out and, uh, you know, in our own behavior. Uh, so I think this is fascinating. Um, you know, one of, one of the things just digressing was I created a 10-year overlay for my life and put in key turning points, getting a job, moving house, you know, doing this, whatever, and you can see how some of these, you know, we talk about years ending in seven in the market tend to see a pullback. Well, you can see some clear patterns coming in in your own 10 year patterns there as well. So uh, there's a little bit of fun and exercise. <laughs> I remember Martin Bamford, who came on the court, sorry, who came on the show a long time ago, um, mentioning that there was a chance, a greater chance that you'd have an affair if you're, you would just before a, a a decade so if you like you know 39 49 29 or whatever that would that was a year that the probability suggested that you would do something sort of slightly you know um out of character maybe i don't know whether character right. is the right word to say but it, caused by the fact that you are going through a decade and it's a bit of a crisis and you you know it might cause you to to act in a slightly different way and i thought well i remember thinking that that's really odd i wonder why people why a year change would do that but then you know everything in markets is psychological but that would that would sort of tie into what what you're saying as well we we all have our own personal cycles it's just that we haven't kind of mapped them or or maybe looked at them closely enough to even notice that they're happening oh for sure well let's I, i've not heard this um this theory of the 29 39 49 sort of higher risk but that makes sense because let's go back to the decennial pattern in markets what do we get in years ending in nine we usually get the culmination of a massive top right so this is the end of a, a cycle it's the end of the 10-year cycle and we do see a significant number of highs proportionally in years ending in nine so uh, and years ending in five. So therefore, you know, I think, you know, that there's also the subconscious or even conscious belief. Oh, I'm 20. I'm going to be 30 next. You know, oh, that's old. Or I'm going to be 60 next. That's old. Or, you know, I'm going to be 50 next. So 
push the boat out, you know, live a little because the opportunities are. Remember, you know, we're, we're driven by FOMO, fear of missing out or fear of losing out. So this idea of uh, hope, fear and greed coming in in this case, in this case, maybe it's hope, you know, maybe it's fear playing against each other. And of course, the year nine and, you know, Gann was big into numerology. There's no doubt about it. And we can see these mathematical, you know, we can mathematically, statistically correlate years ending in nine, seven, five, whatever. And uh, there it is for us all to see. You know, it's not they're all, they're not all equal. So maybe there is something there. I find that fascinating, though, uh, um, Paul. That's I've never heard that before. Yeah. And yes, we do also have our own personal, you know, life cycles and maps and so on, seven year cycles and seven year itches and so on. It's fascinating. I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but I, th- I think um, we should probably move to, to media picks. Tim, was there anything else you wanted to ask? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm good. But I've, I've found the whole thing completely fascinating, I have to say. Um, Andy, is there anything we haven't asked you uh, about? We're going to talk about your services right at the end. But was there anything that you wanted to say that that we hadn't asked you? There is one thing I think would be pertinent to uh, this session. Yeah which is, um, if, if I might just take uh, just a few minutes, um, and I, I hope this helps people listening to this episode, is that quite often traders and um, investors have, no, you know, they'll get in and they don't know where they're getting out, okay? And uh, they won't have a strategy, really. Um, so, and it is because of this that certainly retail traders are often out of business within six to nine months, blowing up their accounts, they didn't know how to manage risk and they didn't have clear targets. And um, I've also found out more recently that professional portfolio managers, very few of them rarely make continuous returns, positive returns for more than three to five years in a row. So <clears throat> um, with this in mind, bearing in mind 95% of retail people are out of business within a few months. Let's look at an industry. Uh, where there is a 100% success rate. And um, we've talked about this. I'd, when I'm talking about this at um, trading uh, uh, and investing uh, speech, I don't actually um, allude to my other career in aviation. But if we look at aviation, I just sort of say, look, I happen to know a lot of pilots, and every one of those pilots has the same number of landings as takeoffs, apart from one maybe, and it gets a bit of a laugh. So why is there a 100% um, success rate in flying? And a five percent success rate in trading and investing. And what can we learn about that? Now there are a series of competencies that pilots use, and some of those are very relevant to trading and investing. And one of those is situational awareness, understanding where you are uh, and where you are heading, and what's going on around you, and what's going around, and what's the situation of the markets that you're looking at. So I think that's quite a deep topic. And, uh, um, you know, you, you mentioned you might invite me back on that would be I'd be absolutely delighted to talk about that. But ultimately, the one thing that gets a laugh is that has anybody ever got onto an aircraft, an airliner, not knowing where it's going? And everybody goes, no, no way. No, that's ridiculous. Well, how many of you also got into trade not knowing where you're going to get out? And suddenly it's the same question in a different profession. And that's where we can learn from the skills of another profession and harness those concepts to really, you know, make your profession in trading and investment and investing, uh, you know, something that's incrementally efficient and profitable. So that's just the overview of that there, um, um, Paul. Uh, But I think there's some very important things to be learned there. Absolutely. I was going to say that many people use um, things that they do outside of the markets and compare them to 
the markets and trading because everything is that there are there's so many things that can be compared you know if you're a racing driver it could be that you know the way you're you're managing your risk um and the way you're analyzing what's coming before you and um literally there are so many ways that that you can revert things back to trading i mean i was once i was waiting for a bus and thinking you know waiting for this bus is is like trading because are you going to are you going to decide that the bus isn't coming and walk or are you going to sit with a position <laughs> a lot of the work that uh, was done um in the you know talked about in the book thinking fast and slow kind of explained yeah. the psychological reasons why this was happening the explanations but through experience through watching traders through trading through through seeing how you know new traders react and and do the same thing again and again you you can draw parallels and say look what you're doing there you wouldn't do it in this environment but you would do it in this environment and you just have to kind of connect those two and then there's this big aha moment and people think completely differently and it goes right back to what tim was saying about psychology at the start of the show no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, this is I, I think what you're referring to is prospect theory there. And and it's this whole idea that when we get into the trading or when, when people get into the trading arena, everything's based on hope, fear and greed until you can overcome that and put in rules. Well, when you fly an airliner, you use a checklist and that checklist is hard and fast and you don't skip any point of that checklist. So bringing that sort of methodology into trading really helps. Um because all the parameters are there, you know, it's like, are you getting off at the right stop on your train that's gone the wrong way? And, uh, you know, as, as prospect theory, you know, brings in the emotions where, you know, the fear of taking a, a, a loss is far greater than the fear of taking a small profit. So you know, th these are areas that, unfortunately, we're all human beings. And as we've proven, history repeats. And so we're going to continue repeating these patterns. But for those of us who want to succeed and better ourselves, you know, that that's an individual mission that we can take on without a shadow of doubt. Yeah, there's one one consistent thing about, you know, people who um, are successful is they always try to be more, more successful. They never assume that they know everything. They're always trying to learn more about it. I've never, never met anybody in the markets who's, who said that they know everything. We're always just learning, aren't we? Absolutely. It's an ongoing uh, journey. And, and, yeah, and, and this is when you mentioned about lottery winners, uh, both of you mentioned, you know, this idea of reversion to the mean. Well, you know, to, to be quite honest, I think if you're on a, a, a journey in your life and you're enjoying it, then you're never going to stop learning. And, and that's where you are going to continuously improve. And that's I think that's just the way we are. I mean, people listening to this are probably in that category because they're listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's also one of the problems with retail traders who come into the market who don't love the market who are not sort of into the markets and you have to be into the markets to then be successful in the markets if you come in i always describe it as well if you say i, I just want to be a brain surgeon because i hear they earn a lot of money you're not going to be good at it but if you if you're actually into the subject then it, then yeah. that's where it comes from it comes from that that interest in what's going on and it's almost and describing it to people who don't know much about markets they they think it's it's really boring and you know it's just like looking at looking at 
you know numbers and and uh, uh, and reading like loads of you know really dry reports. But actually, the markets are really exciting. They're fascinating, and they work in in it's almost like a game the way things seem to unfold and it's never it's never the same there's always something new and i think that that element is what 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 i think is 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 so interesting about markets you're always looking at this it's like this constantly running you know football match if you want to describe it that way um and there's always there's always something happening to keep your attention and sometimes it's a bit quieter than others but then when things kick off it really kicks off and that that that's where you know that that's where you can see that build up where people just suddenly see something like oh you know this market's taken off um you know I'll buy a pullback and they don't and then suddenly gold's at 2400 and they're saying oh this must be a great time to buy because you know it's the fun the fundamentals and the news are saying that it's going to go much higher and that's where it corrects you see that happening over and over and over again um so, yeah, again, absolutely fascinating. Um, Andy, we, we always finish the show with media picks. And for once, I actually managed to forewarn you of this rather than <laughs> sort of dropping you in it. Um, and uh, we usually give the guests a chance to think of one. So um, I know you might already have one, but I'm, I'm going to ask Tim what his is first, and then we'll, we'll come back to you. So, Tim, what, what have you got for us? In light of what we've just been discussing this last five, ten minutes, I'm going to go with two. Um, the first being, and you'll see why, the first is a book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. I read this <laughs> right. a few years back. And wow. The Checklist Manifesto is exactly about how to get things right using checklists. And he, he cites the example of pilots using a checklist you know, before for every flight. How brilliant. Gawande... <laughs> Gawande himself is actually a, was a surgeon. So he's, he's a surgeon. He's, yeah. he's, ta he's taking the same uh, idea, but through the, the the lens of someone who's you know doing operations on people. Um, so that's the first one. And the second one, which is a more, much more recent one, is a, a film I saw over Christmas called Saltburn, um, which is stars Barry Keegan, who people may have seen uh, playing a, a young kid in Dunkirk, which is the first time I was conscious of seeing him. He's a slightly unorthodox-looking guy. Um, playing an Oxford student who gets drawn into a kind of bride's head revisited kind of set. Uh, directed by Emerald Fennell, written by Emerald Fennell. It's a black comedy. It has shades of The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's a, it's a very dark black comedy, but it's completely atmospheric, and I, I'd recommend it to anybody. It's called Saltburn. That is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What a fantastic pick. Um, Andy, what, what have you got for us? Well, first of all, Tim, I, I've actually done some work with uh, Atul Gawande. So, <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, so it's a small world. Um, so I, I was sort of mulling this over and call me old fashioned. The stuff I like seems to go back quite a while. But if you want something that's straight out of um, that's more uh, r relevant and recent. Not um, necessarily. Not necessarily. It can be okay. old. Old is great. We love old. Old is great. So, um the book I would go for is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, because it really is all about mindset. Everything is about your outlook and mindset. And uh, if you haven't read it, the, the word rich doesn't necessarily refer to what's in your wallet or your bank account. It just returns. It refers to the richness of life and having the right belief systems. So that's a classic. I think it goes back all the way to the 1940s. And um, 
There's two movies. The, the, uh, the, the latest one I, I really quite enjoyed was Napoleon, even though it was quite long. And I enjoyed that because we are coming into the context of revolutionary times over the next few years. And watching how a revolution plays out, together with the genius of the strategies of Napoleon, I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, and then probably my all-time favourite, so I'm being greedy now. I, I know Tim went for two, you only asked for one. No, and go for it, go for it, go for it. Perhaps my all-time This is what happens favorite. in a period of very high inflation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Media pick inflation. So um, it's an old movie um, called Local Hero. I don't know if you guys... Bill, have... Bill Forsyth. That's the one, yeah, with uh, Burt Lancaster in and, of course, a very young Peter Capaldi. Uh, not be, uh, yeah, Peter Capaldi. So, and what I really like about that, for those of you who don't know it, is basically how this, uh, I think this really sums up sentiment and human behaviour. That's what, I mean, I watched this just uh, when I was at university, so I'm, I'm showing my age now. But um, there's this up and coming whiz kid oil guy from Houston who flies over to acquire land uh, to build a refinery in Scotland. And what I love about this is that there was parts of me that identify as that guy. Maybe others might not agree. But um, the idea is that, you know, you're on a mission. You're a corporate person. You want to be successful at this young age. And yet when you get to Scotland and you see the beauty and the harmony and uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the nature and all the rest of it and the, and the, the culture and the music, it's this blending of everything in life from ambition through to peace and uh, and quietness. And, and to be quite honest, my favourite place these days is to go off to uh, Western Ireland and sit there with a, with a Guinness and read a book or write something. So it's balance of peace and quiet together with the fast lane. And uh, the fact that Burt Lancaster as the CEO, you know, has this great fascination with the northern lights and all the other stuff. There's a whole series of messages in there and there's something for everybody. So that's that's probably my all-time favourite movie and um, probably a book that's very important. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, I watched Leave the World Behind, which is Netflix, and I would I would say it's not worth watching. Um, it's just <laughs> unusual for a Netflix Netflix film, that isn't it? Yeah, it's it's um, executive producers the obamas if you can believe that it's a oh my god very very strange um missed opportunity and some really weird sort of messages in it and so i would just say leave that um start to watch murder is easy agatha christie the bbc production you couldn't have effed it up more we we <laughs> i watched it five minutes with it and it was like no this is so bad i can't believe it and um at, this is where paul reveals himself to be the black spot of media bits. yeah well i've got to warn you about the bad ones as well but i have got a good one for you which uh i thoroughly enjoyed and you remember 2015 there was the hatton garden heist at, oh yeah and they made the film king of thieves which had some top name actors in it but was utterly unwatchable i again i just stopped watching that because it was so boring um well, there's a Netflix 45-minute uh, documentary with Ross Kemp, and it is brilliant. It just explains all the characters, what they did, uh, got an interview with one of the gangsters, 
utterly fascinating and it's just up the road well it's where tim tim's offices are so we we our, our office address i won't give you the office address but the name of the office is treasure house and we are on hatton garden so I, i've seen this too and i thought it was fantastic oh you saw it did you yeah, yeah i've seen it as well yeah, yeah it's absolutely brilliant well i was hoping you hadn't seen it it'll be a pick for you but i'm glad that you have seen it and um you know you, you agree so andy um there's more to talk about so we've definitely got to have you back um, but for, before you go, could you let everybody know where they can find you? And we've got some stuff to put in the show notes to, for people to special stuff for them, uh, listeners of the show that they can click on and, uh, and get some information from you. So tell us about that. There's a series of things, um, is that, uh, the timing system is based on a series of histograms, which when you see them become quite compelling because you can see how they project into the future and you can identify potential future turning points. So the key point about this is it grounds you with your trading. You know there's a point coming up. You know, effectively, there's like a traffic lights or a junction coming up and you know that your potential position would be at risk. So that information is provided in the market timing report, which is a monthly publication which looks at gold, crude oil. Uh, the S&P 500 dollar index, euro and Bitcoin. So that's sort of um, the bread and butter stuff. We've got a, um, a co um, the Commitment of Traders platform and Seasonality platform that's all together as the Master Traders course and professional platform, which is this deep dive of information. And uh, uh, there's a course that I created with that to teach you how to read that information. And then there's, of course, the uh, Market Time Report trading course. Now, the reason we created the trading course was, as I said earlier, you know, we just put the report out to people who wanted it uh, on the basis that people added it to their decision making process as more advanced traders and investors, portfolio managers. And then we got more retail people coming in saying, well, I don't know how to use this. So we put all the best techniques into that course. So that's also available there. Um, so th those are the key sort of bits and pieces. What we've done is um, if you go to markettimingreport.com forward slash tt think trading um the, a little, uh, you'll get a little box pop up and you can download a pdf that explains this histogram system will show you some interesting stuff about some future points coming up on the s p and gold and the correlation and also you can find more information out about these other uh, products that we create and uh, if you want to get in touch as well there's some contact details there so that's markettimingreport.com forward slash TT. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Andy. And um, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? Because I follow you. And you're on oh, li yes. LinkedIn as well. Uh, so, yeah, actually, let's start off. Uh, I'm passionate about the YouTube channel, which is still quite small. Um, so Market Timing Report uh, with my name, Andrew Pancholi, is the um, the YouTube channel. So come and subscribe to that. And uh um, I, I believe many of you know Akil. Uh, we just did a great interview looking ahead at what's coming up in 2024. So you can watch that for free there. And uh, I've spoken with Phil uh, Anderson that you'll know. There's some great stuff there. We look at all different things from stock market cycles to real estate. And then we had a bumper. In fact, this was Phil's last ever public appearance, he said. Uh, so we had a two hour special with Akil Phil um as well that's all up there uh there's also uh, a fairly recent interview i did with um jim rogers who's uh, uh an associate of mine uh, you know the legendary commodity trader so there's some bits and pieces you can also see actually some stuff on geopolitical cycles um from way back and how they manifest come together how the cuban missile crisis effectively predicted the you know the threat of a nuclear 
um, sort of engagement uh, year before last with Putin's work, etc. So that's all there. We're on LinkedIn, Andrew Pancioli and Twitter, same name. And um, I think we also have a Facebook group as well. Uh, I think it's um, something to do with Market Timer Report. So that, those are the, the three, the YouTube, the LinkedIn and um, Twitter are the ones that uh, we tend to use the most. So we'd love to sort of have you come and join us on those. Fantastic. It's going to be a bumper list on the show notes. Absolutely fantastic. Once again, thank you, Andy, for coming on the show and, you know, really look forward to having you back. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And I hope I haven't gone on, gone on so uh, too much there, but hopefully there's something for everyone there as well. <laughs> well you probably want, to start, probably want to start pressing the record button about now, I'm thinking. Oh, shit. <laughs> right brilliant okay all right well thank you again seriously it's been a lot of fun um and uh, i hope i haven't overextended my welcome there but uh i have really enjoyed talking to you both not at all thanks thanks andy not at all it's gone really quickly thanks andy take care and we'll speak to you again we'll do bye for now Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.